Welcome to No Ideas Original Podcast featuring Shannon, Mr. Rob, and Zane. Soon to be here. Where you at, Zane? Bring your ass, boy. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. We're not live. Not We're not live not today, live. but we wanted to make sure that we gave you some entertainment for Christmas and New Year. So we have a best of No Ideas Original Podcast show. Believe um, it or not, we have reached almost our 50th show. Actually, this will be our 50th show. Wow. Yeah. Seven months, 50 shows. We're putting in some work, bro. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, like, even when I was putting in work, like, it was even just going through the clips and everything I was saying, I was like, man, like, we got a pretty extensive catalog. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are a couple of people, though, that I do want to highlight that, you know, that we got to give props to. So I'm just thinking um, Prince914 and Nashe and Cole. Anytime you see us with any kind of No Ideas original merch on, that's where it's come from. You know, our our theme song is by Straight Bangers. They the ones who created the theme song for us. Real Edible Treats has been down with us for a minute. Of course, Nell's Kitchen. Um, You know, and the very first person who stepped up and sponsored and sent us something. You know who that was, Rob? Remember? Body, was it Body Butter? (laughs) (laughs) Brothers Body Ball. Brothers Body Ball was our first endorsement, bro. Yeah, Brothers Body Ball. He stamped us out when we was was first getting started, before he was even on video. Yo, that was dope, son. And his product was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showed us love. So salute to Brothers Body Ball. But yo, as I was going through the clips and stuff, I was like, damn, like, yo, we had a lot of dope conversations, man. We went from DJs to rappers to elders to to boxers to to educators, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, health nuts. Um, Yeah, yeah. We covered all all sorts of bases, man. Yeah, man, yeah. So the first clip we want to get into is for episode number nine. It was with Ron G. And I have to say, like, this was, I think, the first, this was like our first video, right? First video. first video interview. And for me, I enjoyed it because I, I grew up listening to Ron G, boy. And no matter what people say, don't let them lie to you. Ron G had the mixtape on lock with his mixtapes. Ron G was the mix king. His blends were on fire. Everywhere you went, they was in every cab. Mixtape king, son. Either him or Kid Capri. But you can hear... That Ron G, anywhere you went, you heard that, man. Shout out yeah. to Ron G, man. He gave us a dope story, too. He definitely, he definitely did. You know what? We're going to go to the clip where he talks about how he met Fat Let me Joe. ask you this. Um, I'm always curious um, about, like, the inner work. Like, yo, I'm a process-oriented dude, so I always want to know, like, the inner workings of how these things work, right? So I always wondered for, um, for DJs that were putting out their mixtapes, how did it, the business element of it work? Like, did you give the people your tape to sell and you got a piece or whatever they sold or did you sell them like a master and they could make as many copies as they wanted to well when i when i was when i first was starting it was for me it was more promotion it was more like you got to get your name out there you know what i mean mm-hmm. um i and like i always tell people my my goal was to use the hustler as the hustlers as my fan base because mm-hmm. what i did was i would tell the hustlers look you want a shout out you know, throw me a little sign. You know what I mean? Like, because they all wanted to be famous like we were, like DJ. Mm-hmm. They were like, "Yo, I want my shorty when she hear your mixtape. She want to hear that me and you, me and you, my, you my man, son. You know what I mean?" And I was like, "All right, you know what I'm saying? Make sure I'm all right." <laughs> and then that got around. Then you know, sometimes you have to give them out certain places you go, and that kind of built me a fan base. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That helped me get a fan base. You know, and then the Africans salute a lot of the Africans and my brothers, like Abraham. 
mm-hmm. a lot of uh, Africans on Canal Street, Jamaica okay. Queen, they would duplicate them joints, you know, to the to the T. They made millions and brought houses in synagogue and all that. <laughs> That's like, crazy. You're they the did best. too. The best. I love you. The best. Absolutely, son. <laughs> and they helped me. They helped me. You know, kind of like brand myself because they took my mixtapes everywhere. I everywhere. did too, lot, but they took it a whole lot further than I did. That's real. Yeah. Let me ask you. Let me ask you one question. What What's the biggest crowd? The liveest crowd you ever robbed? Um, I would say the biggest crowds when I DJed at the Garden with Fat Joe. Shout to the homie Fat Joe. Recipes, wow. big. You know what I mean? Fat Joe, mm-hmm. it's my brother right there. I love him, man. Shout to Khaled. Um, you know, it was a time before um, I did We Thug and it was a way before then when Joe first came out with Flo Joe. Right. And I always, I always, now this is a this is something that I always would tell. I always would uh I don't really talk about it too much, but uh I always say like how I met Fat Joe was um it was we had just came from seeing the movie uh New Jack City, right? Right. And they used to have a carnival on 161st Street back in them days, mm-hmm. right? right? And right. one day, um, I was driving, and I accidentally t- hit Fat Joe truck slightly. <laughs> oh, and I didn't know who this dude was. I was, I was scared, man. <laughs> Fat Joe jumped out the truck. He was like, yo, yo. <laughs> when I, I said, oh, Fat Joe, yo, I didn't know who he was. So I was right. like, yo, yo, my bad, my bad, my bad. He was like, yo, yo, yo. I was like, yo, you know, we had like a slight little conversation. He was like, yo, what you do? And I was like, yo, I'm a DJ. I was like, yo, Ron G. He's like, Ron G? Ron G? <laughs> that was our introduction. And he was like, yo, no we kind of like built from there. And I'm telling you, for those who know Fat Joe, you know, Fat Joe never played any games. And for you What's to up? tap the back of his truck and he ain't do nothing to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in the trunk or he was asleep, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, you shot them off. Fat Joe, but you know what? He, I, I started hanging around Fat Joe for a minute, and um, shout to uh, you know, the whole Terror Squad. And what what Joe did was he gave me my first opportunity to DJ with him at Madison Square Garden. It had to be at least forty thousand people that day, and he did wow. Flow Joe. He was like, "You got a Flow Joe," and what I, my job was to do was to like kind of like hype the crowd up before mm-hmm. he did actual Flow Joe. And uh, it, was just a, it was a moment that I will never forget. At the garden, I've I never been in the garden again. Right, that's, a, that's home base right there for yeah, you, man. I, I have never touched the Madison Square Garden again. But that was my first time, and I'm old after Fat Joe. Wow. Yeah. Big shout and out to Fat Joe. 40,000 strong. Yeah. Let me Let me ask you this. The, um, so the mixtape game sort of transitioned. You know, and we should say also, rest in peace to Love Bug Star Ski, right? Yeah, but rest the, in peace. The, the mixtape game transition, like, it went from, you know, the Kid Capri tapes to you having it with the blends. Then it seemed like, from a consumer standpoint, that mixing all together was just out the gate. Like, forget a mix, whoever got the new record. That's right. what it is. That's what it's about. You know, what, right. what was your response to that? What did you think about that? Well, I always thought that, you know, I, you know, I always say this when people ask that question. I say what happened was the hip-hop community was nosy. <laughs> and the reason why I said they were nosy is because they could not wait for the net, for the song to come out. Right. That changed the game. You know, when I was doing the mixtapes, it wasn't about the new song. It's about your creativity with the song you have. You know, and but then when when the, when the hip hop community was like, yo, I want that record first. I want to go be able to tell my boy 
I had this first. I want to be able to hit, tell my people I heard this on the radio first. That changed the game. You see what I'm saying? So That's right. certain DJs started saying, look, I got this first. I wasn't really into that because I didn't want no beef for no rappers. I didn't want no beef for no celebrities. I just said, I'm going to just stay creative on my craft. But other DJs were able to take advantage of that because they, they, they would become um, friends with the engineers or the engineers were their homeboys and right, or right, stupid right. people or they had some, some money they was giving people to get these songs. But that's, um, right. that's what happened. It changed the game. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right, man. The, the right, showmanship, man. the showmanship and the skills kind of declined as yeah. a result of it, right? Yeah, it, all together, it just all, the whole circle changed because people was like, yo, I want this first, you know? And um, I think, but the, I think to me personally, that was a business move because if you were able to get a song yeah. before it came Remember, you remember Ron G's calling call, call? Ron G! Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, love yeah. Ron G because Ron G stay in character too. All the time, baby. <laughs> real good, real good dude, man. He was down to earth. I liked him, man. It was almost like just, just like how we always kicking in. Somebody he came over, he sat down with us, and just hung out. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a good build. Um, then we went from Ron G to episode number ten. Right off, to, off top, you got to know what episode ten is. You better get this right. Episode ten was the illustrious my wife Nell's kitchen, and she brought an exemplary. Uh, a lovely spread. A lovely spread. The presentation was nice. We talked about uh, eating habits and healthy, healthy, healthy habits. Um, my wife is a chef, and she's been putting things together for so long. We have Nell's Kitchen, a small catering company, and you know we brought her on so she could we could promote her and, and and put her out there. So it was a good, it was a nice show. Though. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely a good spread. The food was on point. The conversation was good. We had that conversation where she was talking about, um, we were talking about budgeting. And right. then I was telling y'all about the, the terminology we use in my house, the meal and the meal meal. Yeah, 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 the meal meal. Is that a meal meal? It's not a meal meal. Is that a meal meal or is a meal? <laughs> Everybody at some point you didn't had a meal, but have you had a meal meal? Meal meal, I mean, some, some starch, vegetables, mm -hmm. I mean, a biscuit on the side, that's a meal meal. <laughs> Let's go to Nell's kitchen right now. Nell sits there now. So there's mail, your hat, your keys, your phone, everything but a plate and some food. It's crazy, man. It, it, it really is. So, you know, when I'm thinking of all of these things and, and saying that, you know, the, the chef part of it is it's sharing it. Is sharing it and bringing to another household or bringing to another occasion that that feeling of home, that feeling of comfort, that feeling that it does not have to come from a name that has a commercial running on right. the television. That's you right. can really and truly. And then when I have conversations with people, they're like, "How do you know so much about food? How do you not know so much about it? You're eating it all the time. <laughs> Don't you want to know what you're eating and what it does, Message. and and yeah. how it does the things that it's doing and what's affecting you and what's not? Like I said, we're the ones suffering from high blood pressure. Put the salt down." And the sodium is not just in the salt, it's in the preservatives, it's in the fried, the grease, all of those things that, again, are so accessible to us and taste so good. We want to eat it all the time, mm -hmm. but you can make it. I'm not a fan of the air fryer. Let me just put I was, that I'm, I'm going to ask you about that later. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the air fryer, but a lot of people have now kind of gone to this idea that because they're air frying it, that makes my fried food healthy. 
How come? Are you still salting it and battering it and putting all the stuff on before you put it in the air fryer? It's in the ingredients mm -hmm. of what the air fryer all is doing is cooking it. Mm -hmm. You still have to control what's actually going into it. What do you think about people like in terms of the healthy options? There are people I've heard before say, well, the reason why I don't eat healthy is the cost that's associated with eating healthy. I mean, a lot of people believe that they could go to McDonald's and go on the dollar menu and get a meal and be like, done, here's, here's a meal mm -hmm. for somebody. I versus mean, going into a Whole Foods or something like that and dropping that bag to actually Or even going get. into their pantry and seeing what they yeah. got in their pantry. But, and, and this is, again, this is where, you know, people do your due diligence and just understand what it is that you're eating to begin with. How is it that I can walk into a franchise and get 20 pieces of chicken for one dollar, but I walk into the supermarket and I can't buy one chicken drumstick for that same dollar. How are they equating that? Because mm -hmm. they're still in it to make money as well. Sure. So what again, what are you taking away from yourself by eating on this, you know, mm -hmm. assumed budget? Right. No. Right. You go into a supermarket, there's different ways to do it. I have a large family. I don't think there is any single one person in my family that doesn't eat a lot. <laughs> but just because they're eating a lot, it doesn't mean that it has to be bad what they're eating. You do, when you go shopping, look at the products, look at the cost per pound. A lot of people don't even pay attention to the cost per pound. That's why there's a difference between a $20 pack of chicken and maybe a $10 pack mm -hmm. of chicken. What's the cost per pound? What's the company? Whole Foods, they push this idea of everything is organic. Mm -hmm. Everything is organic, and because it's organic, it costs more. Well, that bell pepper that I bought at Whole Foods and the bell pepper that I bought at ShopRite, it cooked the same exact way. Mm -hmm. It tasted the same way, but yet Brand the Whole Foods one was three times yeah. as much money. So it's, it's, it's the brand. It's the name on the mm -hmm. packaging. If you look at the big, the top companies that own all of these smaller companies, they will tell you themselves, <laughs> We repackage the same exact thing depending on which store it's going into. Mm -hmm. right. So the ShopRite brand is the Stop and Shop brand, is mm -hmm. the Seatstown brand, is the Pioneer brand. But they're just packaging it for that distributor. Right. So I would say there's no such thing as I can't afford to eat healthy. Why not? Because yeah. if you're going to spend $5, look at what you need to buy. Spend your $5 the best way. I never go shopping without first planning my shop. Because if I know I need to get oil and vegetables and fruit and everything else, right. I make myself a list. I know what it is that I'm going out there to get. And I don't go out there with just my pocketbook open. I say, all right. This stuff should cost me around it because, again, I'm paying attention to what I'm buying. Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention to sales. There's nothing wrong with a sale. Nothing wrong with coupons. There is mm -hmm. nothing wrong with coupons. A sale is needed. A sale is needed. <laughs> because, because if they can sell it to you on sale for that price, why can't they sell it to you for that price all the time? Then coming off of Nell's Kitchen, we had episode 11, which was another one that I think was near and dear. And I, I see a pattern because we... You know, we kind of kept it close to close to family. You know, it was family, yeah. friends, Bronx, Boston Road. You know, what episode eleven was off the top. Can you remember? It was straight bangers. Straight bangers, like I said earlier, straight bangers produced the theme song for No Ideas Original Podcast. Right. That's right. Shout out to Rice. Shout out to Pat. Rice and Pat. Yeah, and yo, what I loved about this episode also was. 
it was like a, the first time that we ever tried to pull anything like that off. I think it was like a virtual virtual listening party. And we had some of the artists that actually appeared on the 20 for 20 project. Yeah. Come on and participate. People, we had people, people came through and, and and hung out, man. We had we had a good time that night. I mean, that was that was a good show right there. Yeah, yeah. And it was cool too, because like I said, like knowing them for, for mad long now, knowing them. I raised them boys. You know what I'm saying? You probably you probably know them what 30 plus years? 30 plus, man. Both of them. I knew them, I want to say yeah, I knew them probably like 20 plus years and seeing their progression as his people and producers, you know. If 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 Rife was on here, we always go, I would tell right that we was just on the phone with, with um my boy Nasty and and Spud. And we were talking about when we used to wrestle in the park. And we used to put, <laughs> yo, we used to put the swing on the pole and wrestle on the mat. So you know, mat? we had belts, all that shit, bro. It was crazy. Yo, do you know what the crazy thing is? I thought that we only did that in our hood because in our nah, hood, nah. we used to go in the backyard of our building. We ain't had no mats. We had to wrestle on grass. WWF everywhere, man, or WWE, or I don't know. It's Yo, here's, here's the real question. Were your belts made of tinfoil? Tinfoil and cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Tinfoil and cardboard. Shout, yeah. out, shout out to Pat. Shout out to Nasty. Shout out to Spud. Good bro. Yeah. Home team. Great bangers. Yes, yes. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 11 of No Ideas Original featuring Shalon. And a good brother, Mr. Rob. What's up, Rob? What's going on, King? How's everything with you, brother? Blessed, man. Blessed. Yo, we got a special one today. Today we're joined by my peoples, Rice wow. and Rachi, the straight bangers. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Yo, what up, what up, what up? Shannon, Master Rob, what's, what's good? Man? What's good with y'all, brothers? Rice, how you, son? You, you on mute, Rice? <laughs> Get out of here. Mute yourself, brother. I'm mute yourself, brother. I know. I'm still. I'm here. I'm here. Get it together over here. <laughs> What's going yeah. on? Yeah. Good to see so you guys, is, man. This is a special occasion because we're gonna have our first virtual album listening party. So everybody that's in attendance and others that have be joining will have the opportunity to hear cuts off the 20 for 20 album that comes out June 1st. Joe. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what's up. So before we actually get into the songs off the album, we thought that we asked you guys a couple of questions just from a producer standpoint. So just want to start out by asking you all, you know, what made you get into production and when did you get into production? I'll let Rice start off with that one. I mean, um, i say like the late, I mean, early 90s, I would say. About early 90s. Um, basically, it was, I think it was a collection of things. My brother... Um, he was in some music before, so right. um, he was definitely doing some things, um, messing with P-Rock at the time, and um, just listening to some of the stuff that they would come back with. Um, it definitely inspired me. Um, to Shout out to Bush. Definitely. Um, and uh, me and Pat, you know, we've been friends for so long, we kind of like did a lot together, not just working on music, but just like working in general, working at odd jobs. Um, mm -hmm. So... I mean, for the most part, I think it was from that initial stuff that my brother was doing kind of like lit that spark. Um, and we kind of like started from there with like a little, I can't remember, it was like a little task cam sampler. Yeah. It was, if I can remember, it was like a task cam little sampler, a one button sampler that probably sampled for a certain amount of time. <laughs> um, and we started from there, I remember. It was, that was the beginning of it, you know? Yeah. The funny thing about that sampler is that, um, 
we went all the way, I think, to like um, Brooklyn one time because I had gotten my brother to drive us thinking that, you know, we were going to get all this equipment, all this beat making equipment. And I think we went all the way to Brooklyn um, looking for this sampler and we ended up buying, I don't know if it was Tascam or whatever it was, but he's right. It was literally just a one button sampler. And at the time we didn't know anything about making beats at all. Like there was nobody, there was no blueprint. You know what I mean? There was no YouTube that showed you, listen, this is how you put a beat together. This is how you sing. It was none of that. Literally, it was literally me and Rice in my crib with this <laughs> box looking at it like, like, how do we figure it out? And it was <coughs> call up and be like, listen, can you come and show me how to use this or something like that? It was literally nothing at all. It was just me, him, <laughs> the owner's manual. And since he doesn't read the owner's manuals, I was looking at, kind of reading the owner's manual trying to figure out like how you make it work. And, you know, we made it work. Nice. Let me ask you this, man. When, when did the, the both, any one of you guys can answer this, when did you know you had something special? And what I mean by that is that most people start and stop. But what was it that, that defined a moment that said, you know what, we're going to keep doing this, man. I think we got something here. When was that? Do you, do you have a moment? Um, for me, I would say it probably was when we started messing with Young Lord. So um, yeah. Young Lord, uh, for those who don't know, was uh, um, one of Bad Boy producers back when... Did, did they call him the Hitman? Hit. So he was one of the Hitmen. And then um, when me and Rice had started making beats, I think we only had been making beats for a few years before we stumbled into Young Lord. Like a, a mutual friend of ours worked at a bank. And used to see Young Law coming in there all the time and depositing these checks. And the checks used to have, you know, bad boy stamps on them. Ain't he from the Bronx? From the Bronx. Right. From the Bronx. Right. So right. Um, Young Law said to the dude, like, yeah, you know, I work for, you know, bad boy, this, that, and the third. And this dude happened to say, oh, I know some dudes that make beats. Now, I got to be honest. At the time when we were linked up, <laughs> we weren't ready. Like, from a production point of view, we definitely weren't ready. But... You know, he called us up, we linked up with him, and we played him what we had, you know what I mean? And right. looking back, in hindsight, definitely what we played for him at that point, we definitely wasn't ready, and Young Lord recognized that, and he kind of just took us under his wing um, for a good year and some change where he was just showing us things. Like, that was the first person that I could say was showing us things. Like, it's how right, 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 right. So for me, I think being with Young Lord and him taking me to the studio and watching, like, pun songs get mixed and fat joe songs get mixed i think at that yeah. point, i felt like i think we got something here because if we didn't then he wouldn't want to fuck with us so they gotta yeah. be he gotta see something in us for him to want to fuck with us like that so for me i don't know what rice thinks but for me i think that was the first time where i was like you know i think we actually got something here i think we could do something yeah i mean i think the whole thing with uh young lord was definitely a, a pivotal point with us um because the the actual intro i mean the actual time that young Lord did come over to listen to the beats it was on thanksgiving day mm, that's the funny part about it. it was on a thanksgiving day on a holiday he actually came over to my house and listened sure. to the beats and he had no emotion he was stone cold and like pat and just like pat said we wasn't ready those beats was trash you know <laughs> <laughs> those beats was trash but he was stone cold. I played him the beats and he didn't give me no emotion. All he did was say, he gave me a number and he said, call me this day. And then when I called him, he said, meet me at this studio. And it was Axe's studio. And the song he was mixing that day was Caribbean Connection. Big Pun and Wack Love. Classic. So I was actually in, you know, we was there in the studio while he was mixing that record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, nice, salute nice. to Young Lord for giving giving y'all a shot. You know, oh, yeah. at least we yeah. have the crabs in the barrel mentality. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, you, you mentioned Young Lord. What are some of the other artists that you may have worked with or other producers you work with? 
uh, producers, well, like Rice got a better memory than I do, but I would say from a producer standpoint, you know, Ty Fife, those who don't know Ty Fife, he produced joints for 50 Cent, Foxy Brown, Murder, mm-hmm. some big, mm-hmm. big records. So we, we um, Heat Makers, obviously, um, mm-hmm. he actually was fucking with Heat Makers before they were Heat Makers, you know what I'm saying? So, um, they from Uptown too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely. Exactly. kind of called us in before they were Heat Makers, like I said, and the equipment was hooked up the wrong way. So they called us in like, man, I can't figure out my drum machine, this, that, and the third. So we was kind of the OG to them at the time to say, and I was like, all right, I come over there, hook your shit up for you. And I pretty much went over to their crib, hooked up their drum machine and everything. Like, yeah, you got your MIDI cord hooked up all wrong, homeboy. You know what I'm and then, um, so yeah, before they even got on, we was fucking with um, Heat Makers, Ty Fife. There was um, Young Mahogany. Mahogany. Made a couple of big records for Rough Riders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who else? Producer-wise, um, right? So I don't remember else. who else. Um, I think producer-wise, that was about it. But artist-wise, um, everybody from from Chub Rock to to Nori, um, Littles, Kwame, you, got you know everybody like Hell Rel, right, 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 You know, coming off of the Straight Bangers episode, we had an opportunity to sit down with a brother that's an entrepreneur. Which I really, I really liked, you know. I really liked. Episode thirteen was with Noir B&B. Wasn't he from Florida? Yeah, from yeah, Florida. yeah. No. It, was, it was a great conversation, you know. Hearing him take his experience with Airbnb and use that as a as sort of a segue to create his own company, right. Noir B&B. That's right. You know, it was refreshing. And you know, to speak and tell him, he had his hand in so many other things that I'm like, yo, this this dude really. You know, you have to give him give him his props. You know, I watched the interview back, and yeah. when he was talking about the concierge service, some of the stuff that he was talking about, yo, he was bossing up because he he wasn't just talking about renting a, a home or a room to somebody. Uh, he was talking about he had the whole private yeah, jets, had the whole thing locked down, like mm-hmm. you said, one a one a one a one stop shop concierge service, and on anywhere on the planet, man, you can you can pretty much fuck with him and you know, yeah. And the app too, you know the right. fact that he, the fact that he he had the app, his right. app to go with it, you know, right. really 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 good dude, stand up dude. In fact, oh, one of my men's reached out to me and was trying to link with him to um yeah. to book something. Also, after seeing the show, we need to we need to use his services. We need to promote him more, man. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No Airbnb. Traveling base, so. Just right. that, like three, so three percent from the host, seven percent right. from the guests. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. nice though that it's really, really nice that you merge together the whole travel experience <clears throat> with the right. Airbnb experience. Um, how do you do tourism? Like, what's 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 the what's the criteria to be a host? Like, do you have to go out and actually vet the property and look at the property yourself and say, okay, this this qualifies as being host worthy? How do you how do you do that? So some of, some of the times we actually do do that. As I guess it's a bit of quality assurance for ourselves and for our, our, our travelers as well. But I mean, essentially, the good thing about us being the kind of business that we are is that we're, we're trailblazing in a unique way as far as our business model to focus on our community. But there are a bunch of companies and organizations and platforms that have been there kind of before we have. So what a lot of folks will do is like they'll already be listed on Airbnb or Verbo or Homeway or other platforms like that. And we'll essentially be like, man, well, look, we can, we'll, like, we'll even create their listing for them and they can just log in and update whatever they need to update. But essentially, like a lot of other platforms helps us, helps us kind of verify that these are legit properties. And, and we, we also do a bit of our own back-end verification and, 
and ID testing and stuff for customers to, to make sure that these are legitimate properties too. Yeah, yeah, that makes That's sense. That makes you, a lot got, of sense man. you guys have the um, I saw and I think Miami. What is it? Mm-hmm. The uh, Cooper Door, twenty two guests. So yeah, Copper Door. Like, like mm-hmm. Copper Door. Is it like like huge um, <coughs> hotels or huge bed and breakfast? Are they getting in on this also? And oh yeah, like most definitely. Door? Most nice. definitely. So, so the Copper Door in particular, and the reason why we like them, one, they're a black-owned, like fully black-owned uh, B&B down here in Miami. So, I mean, that's always a great look for us. But so some of them are full-on bed and breakfast with 22 rooms. Some of them are like black-owned hotels. Some of them are just like your yeah. auntie and uncle who got an extra room or an extra property and want to rent it out. So, I mean, it kind of runs the gamut, man, across the spectrum. Nice. That's dope, man. Airbnb. I need to get my Airbnb game up now, so I need to start traveling. See gotta, what this gotta, is all about, man. You, you got to get your Noir Airbnb game you know, up. Yeah, guy. right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Good stuff, man. So, what, 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 yes, what do you see? What do you see for the future of Noir Airbnb? Where, where you think, where you things going? Man, honestly, man, like the the, the primary. Th- Thing for us is just making sure that we can pro- that we can provide and facilitate all the booking requests we have coming in properly service our customer base and our user base but in a lot of ways we're already kind of growing man so we're in the process of developing the mobile app working on that as well we're right. continuing to build out the concierge service we, we definitely want like we essentially want to make it so if you want to book your entire travel experience yourself whether it be booking your accommodations or your flights your ground transportation like we want to provide that right. as well but on top of that too like fully building out the concierge service where we can literally provide a, a top-notch luxury experience and like hands off you only have to worry about it just do your right. thing enjoy your trip and that's the whole thing man but we, we want to do that we want to partner with different countries and their tourism boards and and, and really like create a seamless and and experience and, and help people not only enjoy different cultures but also if you're gonna if you're gonna go visit a country how can you, how can your dollars benefit not just that host in that country but how can it benefit the overall economy of these countries around the world as well too and of course particularly black countries whether it be caribbean african even african, even right. even primarily black cities black areas around new york jersey philly dc wherever i mean oakland la so places like that so like like we want to make sure that, that our platform and the revenue that that our platform generates can really help benefit the communities that we're a part of so we want to focus on that but also too i mean if you want to book a private jet on Norby, like we want to have that available for you. If you if you're if you're in a rush and you took a last minute business trip, like we want to be able to, to have you like you can book a quick seat in the barber chair, get your lineup. You know what I mean? Like yeah, right. man. So right. like a full overall just valuable user experience, man. I mean, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But yeah, man. yeah, man. You know you know what? I appreciate you saying like you you think about like the tourism dollar. A lot of people don't realize like you know think about what we what we're experiencing right now. There are so many countries that are, are severely impacted because they rely on that tourism dollar, and people haven't had the opportunity to um to travel. You know what yeah. I like about the no Airbnb model that I really appreciate is that it's a win win for all parties, right? As the host, you have Precisely. an opportunity to make a couple of dollars. I think even as a guest, with me having been a guest through Airbnb before, but now it's gonna be through no Airbnb, um, it's something different staying in a um, uh, bed and breakfast versus staying in a hotel. Like that experience, it feels much more homely. It, it, yeah. You feel like, you, you really, like you're really involved <laughs> in, and, and ingrained in whatever the culture, whatever the area is. Rather right, than yeah. going into a hotel, and like I've had the opportunity, and you know, to stay in like five star hotels in various different countries. Airbnb, but Airbnb. Yo, the next person we had on for episode fourteen 
Well, the, to me, I, you know what I liked about the interview? Because it ran the gambit. Like, we started off that interview right. talking about social injustice. Right. And I think we finished talking about fashion exploits and 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 right. um and this gentleman's his 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 um his working relationship with the rapper Nas and right. with, um, Damon John from Fubu. It was Willie Willie Esco, you know, and the dude gave us far more time than I thought he would give us. Yeah, and he, he, like, he took a lot of jewels that day, man. Even the the the, the collaboration with, with Puma and 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 um what was the other one he was saying? Was Kooji. and Kooji. Kooji, yeah. I thought that was a that was a nice little uh blend. Yeah, I was now. You look at the Pumas now. There's, there's a pair of Pumas that look just like a Gucci sweater too. Yeah, it had the um the Machiavelli collaboration also, where he was working with right. Tupac's, you know, Tupac's estate. That's right. You know? yeah. It was um to me like listening to him talk candidly about how he created like his own lane. I really yeah. I thought that was dope. You know, when he was sharing how he ended up getting into FIT and you know yeah. how he sort of segued into these working relationships right. in the fashion industry. You know, he just struck me as a regular down-to-earth dude that just kept grinding and plugging away. That's it. Keep the dream alive, man. Yeah. Here's Willie Esco. Success for my first investor, right, which was not the Samsung guys. I need to ensure some penetration into the marketplace, success with my first investor. I need kids to automatically tune in when they hear the name, and Nas was on the radio playing all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's Latin. That's my family background name. And his boy, Ill Will, got killed. I'm like, there, there it is. Like, same as the, remember the same as getting into FIT? I was like, yeah. there it is. Yeah, you know, your universe works with you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for me, it was, let me build it. And while I'm building, I'm being nice enough to reach out to the team. Because I remember I working with the photographer, Daniel Hastings. Mm-hmm. Can you please reach out to him? Tell him what I'm working on. Now I'm totally independent. I'm sort of having some backers, but not not Samsung. So really crucial to try and reach out to him and get him on board. But he got styled around him. Um, he's being touted, you know, as the you know a very super highbrow rapper. Uh, and for me, I'm like, it's no different than going to FIT, being scared of these guys are designers. I'm like, so. It, at a certain point, you just it kicks in, and I'm like, I'm gonna design this. This my my brand's gonna have an alter ego. It's gonna be right. for African American culture. It will be for Nas will represent that for Latin culture, you know. And he does it in his rhymes. Like he puts on a persona of a Latin drug lord, but you're not Latin, right. nor you are a drug lord. So right. you, it's okay for you to do it. <laughs> I, I can do it in fashion. It's the alter ego. So, That's right. Yeah, yeah. So so. so the the ability to push forward regardless if I make the connection with Nas or not, he ultimately came to my office. Once I had to deal with Samsung, he came to my office and started making noise. And that's when you realize, oh, you don't know too much about anything about fashion. You're like, you have your point of view, but there's no perspective on what's coming what's the next trend it's mm-hmm. like i want to wear army jackets and army hats um, tim yeah Holmes. army hats tim's like you know it was 
the concept of wearing Gucci was just coming about. Yes, Big Daddy Kane did it. Dapper Dan, the Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan was doing it, but it was not touched in this era. Mm -hmm. It was a weird time because they're off the Gucci thing. They're more into black-owned brands and discovery of those black-owned brands called Kanai. And we had our moment, but they were going back into aspirational white brands. So you'll see Nas wearing a a pair of Gucci's with... um, Flat, you know, hard-soled Gucci's that I would... I remember going to the mall with him and Stout, and they bought these Gucci's that were like... I didn't understand understand the desire to wear that platform, that low-profile, you know, hard-soled shoe with a wide-ass leg jean. I'm like, that shit don't look right, guys. But they they wanted that... They They wanted that look. They They wanted that look. look. I'm like, I I I don't get that at all, but okay. So certain styling opportunities came about and then certain things you just can't say, yeah, that's kind of whack, but you just let them rock out. Like, do whatever you want. <laughs> At that point, I'm no longer a stylist. I'm like, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm, I'm the designer. Do what you want with the gear. If you need my help, I'll help. You know? mm-hmm. Right. That's right. That's right. Now, um, <clears throat> I noticed um, that you've launched a Machiavelli line. And, yeah. now, and you're working with Cool G. How is it working with two notable artists such as Biggie and Pop? Them not being here, but still finding the inspiration to... Yeah, that's create, another... That's another create, create material. So uh, the finessing and the finagling, like getting to FIT and getting my own name, I got exhausted by being the face of my brand, right? I got exhausted. Why? Because you, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of introverted in the sense where I like my privacy and I started getting in the mix, uh, too much in the mix of the culture where it didn't fit me. Like, I'm not, I don't pop crystal, like I don't drink and I don't smoke. So (laughs) there came a point in time, point in time when like, what are you going to be? What do you want to do? Right. Are you going to play the role? And I always, like I said, this ain't going to last forever, so why play the role? Why don't just cut the cord now, man? Right. Like, I'm not going to, you know, me and Nas had disputes, uh, and it was disputes in him not knowing the business, so the anger was focused towards me instead of the business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you not knowing that you you can't own a majority of your business that I created with my partners because you didn't invest in it. You get a right. percentage. You get a percentage. But you don't. Yeah, you keep. You can't own eighty percent of the brand we built up. We put you on last, <laughs> right? Wow. Now I'll go. I'll go hard and and get more for you, right? But I can't do. I don't even own the majority. So I got to go to my partners and ask them, like, what do you think? And it was weird, bro. It's weird because trust, yo, my man. Trust me. I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes not me now the dynamic is interesting gotta gotta hear me out i'm unique i'm from newark i'm not from queens fubu guys are from queens Mm. Nas is from queens Mm -hmm. there is a there is fear in this business of falling off or being left behind 
right? Mm. So at the time, there's uneasiness. Like, how does Damon John probably have more money than me, right? Because Damon John is in, is in FUBU. He probably controls more of his business than you with Columbia and your music, right? Mm. So it's frustration there. And then the easy target was me and my crew, right? So, okay, um, dude, I, I, I can only be transparent, right? Um, and I will gladly put you in a room with my partners and let's get you more equity in the company. But that requires a conversation where, you know, that, that and I got tired of that. I got tired of trying to appease or I'm in a club, more superficial things. I'm in a club. Uh, Nas wants 10 bottles of Cristal. I'm like, why? <laughs> why is it? Because he has to visit image. I'm like, Astronomical the, the crazy request, right? <laughs> now, this is 10 bottles for Cristal 1998, y'all. This is like, this is, <laughs> this, right. is, this is a lot. It's, it's yeah. a lot, yeah, yeah. Oh, my boys have to have a bottle in their hand. I'm like, wow, that's, I'm pretty, I'm like, I need to get out of this. Like, this is not me. This is not me. I love this business, but this being, um, so I start plotting. I need to get out of this. So as, and I, and I knew I, I'm, I'm coming up on seven years doing it. I knew the business and Nas is tenure with anybody in the business, you're running five to seven before you have a full-blown F you, get out of my face. He did it with everybody. He did right. it with the firm. He did it with everybody, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I know that it's, it's not anything personal. It's just lack of understanding how the business is run. So mm -hmm. I was like, guys, like, I knew, I knew I was, it was about to take a turn for the worse. So, as exiting, I'm starting to say, all right, what am I going to do next? That doesn't require me to be in a club with you. Don't require me to be in ads. Don't require me to babysit you or an artist. What is, what is that? I, I, I'm intellectual in that sense where I want to keep doing this, but I need to do it where it's I'm sitting back at home, I'm mm -hmm. wizard of Ozing it, you know, behind the curtain, and don't got to do much. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Um, him and two opportunities came 50 Cent G Unit, okay. yeah. I uh, work with Shaw Money, and then my my sales rep said, You know, my brother's teaching Tupac in college. I'm like, What? He's like, They're teaching courses of Tupac in college. This is 2003, okay. And I'm like, What do you mean? All of his poetry, he's prolific, he's got a lot of writings. And they're just teaching. His, I was like, oh, if they're teaching them at college, and I knew the guy who ran the estate, I'm like, that could be a brand. Like, that, I go automatically to like, but I got two ends of the spectrum. 50's brand new, Tupac is mm -hmm. an OG. I'm right. trying to do both. Right. So I, I put on the table for 50, 500K to do G Unit. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he did a he did a he did an ad with Mark Echo just prior to me starting to get in his head about doing a brand, mm -hmm. and Mark gave him two mil. So I'm like, wow, oh, you got you got to do that. 
that's the end you do. Right, you don't look back. Don't look back. Right, I out the deal and I'm still on the grind like that. That's from that. Right? So, but I was, to understand I have my finger on the pulse is more gratifying than actually, you know, uh, being a face of the brand. Like, I'm going to do this or this. Both are going to work. No matter what, right? Let me, so I let went. Me. I went. Put my efforts behind Tupac. No, he's not asking for anything Chris at Dow. the club. He's gone, right? <laughs> it's gone. Hey. There's no issue there. It's just honoring his legacy. And right. when I started seeing <coughs> how many people love this guy, yes, sir. I was, I, I, and the, the problem why I did not see it is because I'm a Biggie guy. I'm New York. I didn't really <laughs> like Pop. But when I dug, I had kept an open mind and I dug and I said, yo, this is uh, more genius than, than what I did with Esco. This is going to be crazy. And then I looked up everything like 11 million Machiavelli. I'm like, let me just check if that's fucking clear. Mm-hmm. It's Machiavelli. I can, I can make that a brand. No trademark on the brand. I'm like, oh, there it is again. It's like, the most you sold eleven million copies, and nobody trademarked the category for clothing. <laughs> no problem. Okay. So yeah. I think Easy this is fix. where this is where if you're tuned into, you know how you move. I wanted to really get out of being a face or anything. This is where it made a way for me. Like, so yeah. I went to. I'm not a jerk. I went to explain to everybody involved. Here's what I want to do. I went to a Feeney, Sat with a Feeney. Here's what I like to do, Just ink the deal. And then after I inked the deal, because I had to clear the trademark, I said, I want to call it. They, they thought I was going to call it Tupac. I'm like, no, no. It has to be something sexy um, and something I control. Like, I didn't control the name Tupac. Like, I want to yeah. control the deal because you don't know. Like, once you control everything, then you see how people get fidgety. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like... Yeah. So you want to call it Machiavelli? You're like, Machiavelli, you know, you're like, yeah, that's going to work. And you didn't think of it? Yeah, yeah. They get like, right. like, then they'll do Google, they'll read lawyers look at it like, you trademarked this? Yeah. Just think, <laughs> how do you know I trademarked it? Right. I'm not a jerk, though. They wanted, the wanted to beat you to the punch after, yeah, you, yeah. after you mentioned it. But I, I leveraged everything, and then I handed it over to Afini. It's yours. Like, that's nice. not mine. Nice. That's just, right. That's as, dope. As as, I'm, not a, I'm not an asshole like that. But that's dope. dealing with Nas, dealing with FUBU Queens, like, there are times when we're at Source Awards, you got to wear my brand. Like, you're at Source Awards. He'll wear FUBU shit. And I'm like, D, I'm talking to Damon, and I'm like, yo, guys, what are you doing? Like, like yeah. Cutthroat business, it sounds like. Yeah, it's yeah. like. With family, why would you do that to me, man? You shouldn't do that. Like, I, don't yeah. put, I don't give packages to LL. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I wanted out of that. And Tupac was ultimately the easiest thing because I'll call After Willie Esco, we took it back to the Bronx. And we had an opportunity to speak to uh, Prospect. Nice. Prospect from the yeah. Tech Squad. That was a, that was, that was a, that was a, wasn't like, wasn't, wasn't too tough of an interview. He didn't pull too many teeth, but he was cool. He's a cool laid back dude, you could tell. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, it was it was dope to um to speak to him because the last time I spoke to him prior to us interviewing him was probably maybe about a year ago. We have an annual um 
my man had Shay Day for his brother that passed away when we were younger. So it's just annually, every year they have Shay Day and it's a barbecue and, you know, we just celebrate his life. Right. And I had a chance to build with Prospect, I think, at a Shay Day, but we didn't really get a chance to like chop it up in detail. So when I reached out to him to um to do the interview, he was like, bet. So it was it's it's always good for me to see, like I was saying about Rice and Pat, to see people that I grew up with doing well for themselves, flourishing right. and good right. health, and you know, I have something going on, you know. And he's always which just what you guys seen in the interview, that's how he's always been. You know, he's right. just always been like a real humble, quiet, down to earth. Oh, man, it's there, son. But, yeah. get him, but get him on that mic, it's a rap. Yeah, yeah. And he plays some music for us in that episode too. Right. In the back of a U-Haul truck, bro. Pun crew, pun crew, and me and my crew, we went in the back of a U-Haul truck, bro. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy, yeah. Man. That's and that's bad. what I was just—I was just about to use that word "crew" because that's what you don't see no more. When you got a crew, son. Uh-huh. You got a crew, and it's four or five of y'all. Y'all solid as a fucking rock. Exactly. That's BX. That's all BX. That's all BX is about, son. Yes. Rolling like a crew. Somebody got your back, son. That's, mm-hmm. that's the real shit right there. So yeah. I'm loving this. I'm loving this it's, right already. Yo, it's crazy how much how much talent we actually had in the hood, right? Like, yo, crazy. my my my, my yeah. experience, my ex, yo, my my first experience with even with with pun before people told me that pun before I knew that pun rhyme, I didn't even know him as pun. I knew him as dog, and it was playing ball. Like, yo, yeah. pun was a big dude, but yo, uh-huh. he was light on his feet. He, he was ball. nice. <laughs> yeah, he could ball, and then you know, he, I found out that it was him. It was um full of clips. It was him. Chase, Cuban, and Toom from my building. Remember Toom? Yeah, yeah, Toom, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and they, was, they, they were full of clips, and they was making their rounds, you know, trying to get on also. You know, um, tell us about the moment, I guess, like, what, what was the connection? So how'd you end up connecting with Terror Squad? All through Pun, man. Pun made all that happen. It was crazy because, um, you, know, um, you know, we knew Pun was – it's crazy nice, man. I heard pun like yeah. I only heard pun like I, I had like two verses I heard them kick like just in the streets and them shits. I ain't ever heard no verses like that in my life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, it was weird because I was at my boy house and we heard um, "You Ain't a Killer" come on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was I heard "You Ain't a Killer" come on the radio, and I felt like a fan. Like I ain't know who this dude was. I was amazed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it hard to be amazed with people that you know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you know, I knew him, but it was just, when I heard it, it was like, I ain't know. I was like, who is this dude? This shit is crazy. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. me and my man was playing You Ain't the Killer. So, I don't know how, some 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 way around, I got a, uh, 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 a tape, a single tape. At that time, we had the cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was um he had a, a cassette tape with you ain't the killer on one side and I'm out of player on the other the side. The original version, right? Oh yeah. wow! But, but yeah, before before even before um probably, probably not even before I'm out of player. I know you ain't the killer was on that on that tape. Mm-hmm. I had. Right. And I was playing that you ain't the killer, and I had a Walkman at that time. We had the tape in the Walkman, and I was playing that shit. And I'm on the corner playing that. On little on the corner, little veils. Mm-hmm. One six five prospect. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Punk pulls up in the car, and he stops. And he, he like telling me, you know, stop and say what's up to me. And I'm like, yo, what up, Punk? What up? What up? And he, I'm like, yo, I got this on um, your tape right now. I'm listening to your song. Yo, that shit is fire. And I guess he was so surprised that you know what I mean. Somebody had his song. 
and was playing that shit. He was like, "Yo, yo, hold up, we gonna chill out, chill out." Now you pulled over. I'm gonna grab Cube and just do it. We're gonna come back out the '40s. No doubt. We're gonna hang out. Yeah, shit. Yeah. So he wanted to grab me before he grabbed Cuban. That's what's up. He wanted to put it up the Cuban crib too deep. You know what I'm saying? And me, him, and Cuban started hanging out that day. That one day went to his crib. I ain't leave his crib in like two days, bro. He didn't <laughs> let me go home. I was a kid yeah. for like two days, bro. And we was just vibing and connecting like that. And it's ever since that day. Wow, son. And you and yo, you got the dopest MC name too. I don't know if that's your hood name, but Prospect. Come on, my yeah. nigga. That's yeah. BX. Three thousand. Yeah. Yeah, it was a double meaning behind that, you know, meaning because the, mm-hmm. the, the the meaning of the word, right, right, of back. course. And I was the young upcoming dude at that time. At that and time, I'm from Prospect, I'm right. from Prospect Avenue, born, raised. Yes, yeah, son. Mm-hmm. Yo, my yeah. my my father, my entire father's side is from Forest, son. So when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, that's somebody got a real Bronx name. That's a Bronx. Yeah, bro. So that's me. I'm born and raised. That's me. All day. day. That's what's up. I got all my love from music, everything from that street, man. Right. <laughs> working with yeah. Pun though, working with Pun. What were some of the some of the best sessions you had with Pun? All of them, man. Everyone. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you can't even put one one in perspective, right? Nah, he was just right. always thinking of something new to invent or something. You know, he was always trying to find some new ways to prank you or something to keep us going. He like to keep the energy up in the room. You know what I'm saying? Right. He ain't want nobody, right. ain't want nobody down and feeling sad or just in your own zone by yourself. Nah, we all reacting together. Together. And we interacting with each other. Yeah, you, know you can tell that from he had he had that loyalty about him, man. He had that that yeah. that big that big homie, that big brother type of you know what I'm saying? You can see he that knew to, he knew how to make you feel like genuine love in a few minutes. To where right. he can say something to you, he probably can snap on you like somebody you knew for 20 years. And right. he meets you in two minutes and snap on you and say that to you, and you wouldn't take it that way. You'll feel love about it. you be laughing it. with him. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, a, yeah, that's a fact, definitely. Yeah. yeah he's so. definitely a prankster, a joker, a dude who, who just he's always had like a real good good heart that's or whatever. Fair. Yeah, he could be man. that way, and he could be that way because he official. He a real dude, and when you official, when you real, and you comfortable with yourself, you ain't got to worry about trying to be a tough guy. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. You gotta look hardcore in front of everybody. You could be a clown and do all this stuff, but people know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So let me let me let me ask you this. Also, being in that environment, you probably work with some of the, I don't know, craziest producers, man. Any that you want to work with that you haven't worked with, being in the game so long? Oh man. Buck Wow was a crazy mm. Wow, you know, yeah. Premier Primo. We had another dude, Young Lord. We had Young Lord, yeah. We talked about Young Lord not too long ago. Yeah, we had we had some dudes, man. You know what I mean? I, I rhymed on most of them tracks anyway. Like it wasn't my own, wasn't my own solo track, but I rhymed on a few of them tracks with us as a group. You know what I'm saying? That's so right. I, I kind of got that feel, but if anybody, I would want Dr. Dre. Yeah, who don't? <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, Give me three. Yeah, Give me a couple of those. Yeah, Dr. Dre. And right now, Kanye. Give me a Kanye joint. Yeah. Kanye West. You know what I'm saying? So, what was the first um, track you ended up getting on with them? Um, the first track I did was with Punt. That was a freestyle for um, Tony Touch mixtape. The okay. best 50 MCs. Oh, classic mixtape. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Best 50 MCs, Latin Connection. No, yeah, it was the best 50 MCs, Tony Touch. And Pun had brought me with him, and I hopped on that with him. That was the first one. That was the yeah. one that kind of persuaded Joe to want to, you know, go more harder with me. Then, after we interviewed Prospect, I must admit, this, this interview, when it was presented to us, and I, I give Zane his props for this because Zane identified this person. Then we had... For episode 16, we had Blondie Baruti from the Beat Perk social media app. And I like this bro. I like this bro. Yeah, you know, what you all don't know, what you don't see on camera is that behind the scenes, myself, Rob, and Zane, we have these conversations. Sometimes the conversations go really smooth. Sometimes the conversations don't go so smooth. And it's, 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 it's tough deliberation. You know, because we're all saying whether we think this person would appeal to our audience. Right. You know, so we move forward with um with Blondie Baruti and the B Perk app. And it was and to be candid, it was a it was a challenging interview. And what made it challenging is I don't know if they've updated it since, but at that time, B Perk was only on iOS, which is which is for iPhone. Rob and Zane don't use the iPhone, so I was the only person with access to the app. And we take pride in when we do our interviews that we actually research people. Right. You know, so we want to see the app. We want to learn about the people. And I think that what came out of that interview for me, what I discovered and what I really appreciated, you know, even more so than the app, was his story of coming from the Congo That's right. and actually making it. Yeah, making during, it in the Congo. during war during wartime. Yeah, yeah, he had a hell of a story. Travel wartime, and then I think his mom's. Somehow he got to California after that. And then he started going to school, playing ball, messed up his ankle. Yeah. And he's an actor. And he's an actor. And he's an actor, you know. So, again, you know, I, I say, like, the behind the scenes of this stuff that what people don't see that that um, that um doesn't make it to the screen. Like, there's, there's careful deliberations about who we actually put on the platform and why we put them on the platform. But... It turned out to be a good interview, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed having a conversation with the brother. And I, and I think the content, like I said, the content that we're using, so we can so we can grow our audience. It's, it's broad, it's wide range. We want to make sure we, we touch a little bit of everything from all ages, thirty to thirty-five, all up to sixty-five. Any any bit of information we can use for our community, we try to bring. Um, yeah. Try to bring that to the forefront. Yeah. Check out Blondie Baruti. Be original with Shannon and a good brother, Mr. Rob. Today we are joined by Blondie Baruti from the Be Perk app. How you doing, brother? Yes, nice sir. to meet you. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Nice to meet you as well. So we're excited to have you here today to talk a little bit about the um the app. But before we get into discussing the app, I did want to, you know, we talked a little bit behind the scenes and I did do some research and look you up. And I want to talk a little bit about the journey of how you went from the Congo to Hollywood and now it seems like Silicon Valley. What was that like? Uh, well, it's been like a very, very long journey. You know, um, I was born in the Congo, uh, um, and when I was 10 years old, my mom and my sister, we were involved in a civil war and we had to run over 500 miles and it took us about 18 months, you know, through the jungle of the Congo to survive civil war, you know, um, and I was only 10 years old and it was one of the toughest journey of my life, you know, of our lives because I wrote a book. Uh, the uh, the jungle became part of me. What I meant was, at the beginning, it was very, very hard. 
you know, because uh, to live in the middle of nowhere, you know, uh, through the jungle of the Congo. But after a few months, after two or three months, it became normal. It became a new home, which is not habitat. normal. You know, you know, which is not normal to live in the middle of the jungle. Sure. So I wrote a book like the uh, the jungle became part of me. You know, and then after after eighteen months through the jungle of the Congo, uh, somehow we survived. You know, I lost all my friends, and, and even uh, until today, my mom asked me. I was like, I still don't know how you survived because you were falling sick every week and and we um and we had no medicine you know in but somehow you keep hanging there you keep surviving you keep fighting and and here we are and then we moved to the uh to the west coast of the congo and and that's when i started like learning how to play soccer with my friend and because i because if you're not uh if you're an african kid you know everyone plays soccer but i was a little bit too tall to keep playing soccer and my friend pushed me to learn how to play basketball you know nice. and yeah, then I pick up basketball and I just, I just, I just fell in love with it. And then I started practicing every single day. And uh, I wrote a book. I used to walk. Oh, oh, first of all, like when I first moved to the U.S. in OA, when I was 17 years old, I was introduced for the very first time to GPS. You know, and I started to think, okay, here to there, it's one mile. So how many miles I used to walk back home, you know, so <laughs> I got that. I can do that. Oh my goodness. So, 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 wow. so, um, so I can, so I can't imagine I used to walk close to 12 miles a day from home to school, school to basketball practice, basketball practice, pick up game with my friends, pick up game and walk all the way back home, you know, every single day. And, 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 you know, um, it was normal. And when I used to tell my friend, that one day I'm gonna go to the US. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna play college basketball. They were like, you are nuts, you are crazy. Because it doesn't happen, you know. Um, uh, I used to walk pretty much, I used to play basketball with pretty much no shoes on, you know, and, and, and outside in, in, in 110 degrees. You know, but wow, and yeah. and your crossover is deadly, huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then, and then, when uh, uh, I'm telling my visions to my friend, like one day I'm gonna go to the US, I'm gonna play college basketball, I'm gonna make it to the NBA, and they were like, "This guy's delusional. He's nuts. He's crazy." I was like, "No, I'm gonna make it happen." That's and right. I knew the best way to get there. It was I had to get myself ready for it. So which means I had to sacrifice. I had to walk 10 miles a day to practice every day, you know, to shoot around every day, to just get ready whenever, whenever the opportunities, you know, uh, 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 comes out. So, come out, sure. and then, yeah, come on. And then, and then, and then somehow one day this guy came to me, name was Dr. Lisa. He was like, I've been watching you in the last couple of months and you, your offense suck, <laughs> but your defense <laughs> is pretty oh. very, 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 very good. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, in basketball, we can teach you how to be a better offense player, but defense, not too many players like to play defense. That's and right. for you to be so comfortable playing defense, because I used to just block like 10 blocks a day. She's blocking and she's getting like 20 rebounds. That's what I, that, that's what nice. I just wanted to block shot and get rebound. That's what I wanted to do all day. Like I didn't want to score. I just wanted to block shot and get rebound. And then um, he had a friend here in the US. Uh, they contacted me and you know, and, and I was very, very lucky. I was offered basketball scholarship, you know, uh, to come to a prep school, you know, and then I came down here and, you know, and uh, a lot of things happened like uh, uh, during my life. America was like a different type of jungle that I had to go through, you know, to get here. Sure. But, 
I survive and uh, yes, I play. I play high school basketball and I got a bunch of scholarships and then I decided to go to Tulsa University. And it was a small private school. Uh, and I went there and then I double major in college, uh, business management and theater. You know, and then uh, right, right after my freshman year, I broke my ankle and that was the end of them. You know, and, and the doctor told me you had to let it go. And then I was like, okay, so what's next? You know, <laughs> you know, basketball is over. So what's next? You know, we gotta find another way. You know, we gotta find another way to, you know, uh, to try to survive. So I was like, okay, why not write a book? And I told my friend, I'm gonna write a book about my life, and it's gonna be a successful book. It's gonna inspire people, and we're gonna make a movie out of them. You're know, like, you don't even speak English. How are you gonna write a book? <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna write it I'm down. Gonna do it. Broken, That's right. I'm gonna do it with my broken English. Then coming off the B Perk interview. We had episode 17. This, to me... This was a dope interview. Yeah, this was like... This was one of this, 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 this was the first interview that was like... We was on set. Because he was at someone's house putting up a crazy mural. Mm-hmm. And he was showing... It was like, wow, here we are on set. And we was yeah, we, had, we was on the phone with for a little minute, too, man. Yeah. 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 Look, oh, here's an, another behind-the-scenes story with this. I don't know if Rob remembers, but... We did the interview. It was probably like over two hours. I remember ending the interview, talking to my wife and telling my wife, yo, that was the dopest interview that me and Rob have done so far. I was so excited about this interview. Went to play it back, no audio. No audio. I think I called you and told you. Yeah, 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 I remember that. <laughs> I remember that, it was like, yo, no audio. Like what, we just messed that up? No audio, but then like after after I dug through the clips, I was able to salvage oh, some of that. Yeah, some of, some of the audio, and I have to say that um, the Mont Pinder Pinder story, uh, Monty, very cool, down to earth brother. That even in fact, after we ended the interview with him, he started making calls on behalf of us, reaching out, like trying to connect us with people. To get yeah. other people to come on the platform, which he didn't, which honestly he didn't have to do. That's right. You know, but he was he was that was dope, that was dope for him to do that. Man. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a really good, a really good interview. And you know, for um for this clip, what we decided to do, because we had so many pieces of footage, instead of playing something or showing you guys something that was actually in the interview that you had an opportunity to see air, we're gonna put out some unreleased footage from the interview. For you little, to see little, little some, little some behind the scenes from the <laughs> Pender. Nice. Cool all right, all right, that's cool. So, so right here you have Stevie. I ain't finished. It's not even detail yet. It's just the outline. I mean, I'm like seventy three percent done with. It. I still got more details to do, even with Marvin. But nice. we making this. Um, a friend of mine named Eddie. Man, he has a beautiful home out here in um, Baltimore. Man, it's one of them old. Um, what's the Craftsman house? I think Craftsman style, okay. but it's dope. We renovated the inside and everything. It's just dope. But I had the opportunity to put um some some of the figures that I love to put on the wall on the wall. Like you know what I mean, like yeah, they got Mr. Rita Franklin. Oh, I actually painted at her tribute concert and had the picture at her funeral the next day too. So shout out to uh Franklin, my, my friend Chris, through her niece. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're gonna put um Donna Ross up. We got Frederick Douglass over there, so. It's literally different pockets. I'm gonna post it too, though, but it's different 
pieces on the wall that got different pieces. Of yeah, if I if, if I ever get the basement I want, you're doing my basement, bro. Just tell <laughs> me. Oh, man, I was like, yeah, but you know, even yo, bomb, son. you got even if you don't got no walls, you got <laughs> somewhere we could just hang it. That's right. Yeah. That's it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, my 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 favorite joint um is the the I'm a well, I'm a huge Stevie Wonder fan so this, so I seen the Stevie Wonder um clothing Every, joint with the beads look, like yeah, yeah I was like yeah with the, the young Stevie son yeah son official we official. I, we um Stevie came on stage with us in uh in uh DC he sung um it was during because him and Raheem birthdays are back to back so um he actually blessed the stage man so I could say I perform with Stevie Wonder man like I got his videos of um. If you, I think if you Google Raheem and Stevie Wonder at the Savoy Club in LA or something like that, whatever, the video will pull up. You'll see. Pull up. How, how could how could uh, how could Spike Lee not realize though the size of that picture? Like I'm looking, and I even looking at the photos on Instagram, you can tell like yo, that's a, that's a fairly decent size picture. You know, like the the work is a fairly decent size. That's not something you look at. You be like yo, this is a twelve by twelve. Come on now, really? You Look, see the size that, of the clothes. I can't see. You see the size of Spike glasses. You can't see. So, so that's the reason. So, so I didn't even say this in the interview, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was, what I was gonna say about the whole thing. That's what made me do the, the, um, the, the permanent Malcolm X because when I didn't hear back from him, I'm like, yo, um, I see, I see, oh man, you know what? I'm gonna make this joint permanent right now, and I'm gonna hang this joint so I can stand beside it so you can see how big. That's that was my motivation <laughs> to make that first permanent piece because I didn't get the response or I didn't get hit back by a spike, whatever. And mm-hmm. no, 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 no love lost on that end, but that was my motivation. So now it's yeah. like, even if it never gets sold, but I can feel like I did it. Like, yo, this ain't right. like big, massive yeah. complex, you know what I mean? In a restaurant, boom, boom, whatever. But the way I did it was, it was already on the floor and I had the piece by piece kind of like put it together. End up putting a big piece of fabric behind it, so that was my that was my base. Mm-hmm. Right. So I took my base, and I had it was a big cloth. I literally rolled it up, and it, the, how big it was, I rolled it up, and it just fit inside of a laundry bag. You know the nylon. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It just made it inside. So that's how I traveled down to Art Basel with that in my bag. I flew Southwest. You know, you get two free bags, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had that, and then I had I had um, numerous canvases all like stacked together, taped together. So that was yeah. my other piece of luggage, whatever. Um, and I got it down to, um, to, to Miami, whatever. We tried to hang it up. Eventually, it went not work. So what I did was I laid it down the ground and I took four pieces of um, wood. Wood? And I, I put just surrounded it. it. And then right. I kind of like stick, like, that's how it But it was hell getting that picture of hell. Because yeah. the way the restaurant is made, we had to do it between the um the register and different things and business was open. I'm like, oh my God, yo, I'm trying yeah. to pick it up. <laughs> trying not to ruin it. Or yeah, yeah, it. like to the point where my man hit me like, my man, the owner hit my phone, I didn't even answer to him. I'm like, oh man, yo. <laughs> in the middle of business right now, you know what I'm saying? And I yeah. still haven't got the pitch up on the wall and we struggling. I'm like, ah, oh. you know, I'm trying to, but it worked out though, you know what I mean? It definitely worked out. And it's hanging up there today, man. But moving forward, I know I'm gonna do a, um, a, a permanent piece. I got another piece of John Witherspoon joint. Oh, that'd be high. Yeah. That's the, um, what, what collection is that? Pops. Huh? Witherspoon Pops. Is it, we call it the, Im- the embedded project or something like that? Oh, Dependent Fabric Art. Right. Yeah, yeah. so you get the hat tag for those and you'll be able to pull up the uh, the other ones. The Nipsey Hustle. You seen the, you seen the Snoop one? Yes, sir. Yeah. So I was yeah. in Ponytail. Nipsey, I was part of his braid, I think. Janet Jackson, Tupac, I was part of her braids. So, yeah. 
I be trying to hide in there, man. You know, the, print, man. The, the, the Prince joint too, yeah. We oh yeah, the Prince joint was crazy. Too, yeah. My man Kenny Sway did an incredible job singing the joint. We made like a little mini movie from the joint. So yeah, you a you a sneakerhead too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I see I, I see the sneakers in there and, and might, the pictures. Might, I haven't got busy in a minute. You know what I'm saying? But I got some people that that got that collects. You know what I'm saying? Like I ain't I ain't, I ain't got enough um. For that battle or to be in that conversation. If it's just giggles, yeah, but I, I'm more of a sneakerhead, meaning like. You wear, you, know, you don't You just you wear some fly, you just buy some cool shit. I like fly shit, you know what I'm saying? I don't care if it's a pair yeah. of felines. Like, if sure. it looks fly and I know I could throw it like some, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a real simple yo, dude. Yo, so I, I got I me a pair of Diodoras last year. Oh, man. Thought, yo, whew. I'm trying when I'm trying when I'm trying to find I haven't found yet is I want the lottos with the patches. That's the, the shit oh, I you need. Take patches though, right? Yeah, yeah. Those, those yeah. Are, I can't find them nowhere. Like I've been looking like on eBay, ev looking everywhere, and I can't find them nowhere. But some of the joints I need them lottos with the patches. But the Adoras, Felas, like yo, some the Adoras are some sky has some white and sky blue suede. The Adoras, yeah. Those is nice. Mm -hmm. Those is nice right, right there. Those yeah. is killers right there. You, you know for um. The, the fabric, the fabric joint um, that you may want to connect with, it'd probably be hard as hell to get to him though. But Ronnie, Ronnie Fig from, Ronnie from Fig, Kip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about him when you was talking about it. The other, I was like, yo, he might be the one with the lottos. I was yeah. like, he might want to hit Ronnie. He probably bring out. Um, but it's nah, nah, Kip, my nephew. Yeah. He want to connect with him so bad. You know, yo, you need a game. I guess you know. I don't know, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like, only thing I could do is just outwork myself, man. Hopefully, that. Mm -hmm. it's you know what? I guess we must have been like an a, a, a art vibe during that time, because after we finished up with Monty, shortly thereafter. Did your sister, right? Yeah, my sister-in-law. Shout out to Tiffany. ATL Art Vibes. <clears throat> Tiffany came on and she shared with us some of the work that she's been doing down in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Tiffany is. Probably hands down when you say artist, like she's artist to the to 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 the to the bone. Like I mean, right. she did culinary art. If you go to her house, you see all kinds of things that she made outside of her house. Things that she made. She works on murals, murals, uh, body paint. Yeah, all yeah. sorts of stuff, man. Super talented, man. Very very creative. That was that was that was a delight too of a show. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was good. You know why? Because I mean, it, it was different for me because I'm used to talking to her as Tiffany, not right. not interviewing her. Right, right, right. You know, it was it was it was a good discussion. And I, and I think that it went right. It went hand in hand with us having Monty on the week before and then having her because it was a nice transition from artist to artist and gave people an opportunity to see the different type of art that people are doing. That's right. Everything to me. Like, I still do it. And. I, and now it makes sense. And right. he's one of my biggest fans now. So right, right. You got a lot of work. Yeah, we we had we had Demont Pinder uh, for Pinder Story. I'm sure you're probably familiar with some of his work. We had we had. Yeah, I just discovered him recently, so I like this is kind of crazy. Yeah, he 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 was on um, earlier in the week, and one of the things that I asked him is that you know if you're as an artist, and you know I think an artist. Um, encompasses, you know, people that's in music, acting, poetry. There's just so many different variations of art. But when you start thinking about music as a musician, there can be a mentor, you know, somebody you like, man, I really want my sound to sound like Prince, Michael Jackson, or whatever it is. As an actor, there could be somebody you could say, well, you know, for years I've studied the classics, like I've Sidney Poitier, Eddie Murphy, whoever it is. But for an artist, who is the, you know, who do artists 
look at artists that paint and draw who are their mentors who are the people that they look at and say you know what i want to fashion my art after this person um that's a good question i don't i don't think there's a specific person for me it's a lot of things that inspire me not just other art from artists and i don't know and i kind of feel like i struggle with my style too because i don't really have a certain person that i like or a certain style of art i'm just intrigued by all of it so I feel like that's why I'm kind of like hands into everything. Like I do yeah. sculpting stuff. Yeah, like you do a lot, I can man. sew. Like I'm doing <laughs> stuff with rocks outside. Like I'm just everywhere. Cause like, I'm just, my brain is so open now. Cause I finally have that freedom. And I, right. like, my mom's not going to slap me or ball up my paper. Cause she's like, where's your, you know, where your homework? Put that away. So now I just feel like, oh my God, I got to dip my hands into everything. And I appreciate every artist. Like, I, I kind of don't know how to describe it. Like, um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm just yeah, all I, the way in. I appreciate <laughs> that, that piece. I appreciate that piece over your left shoulder with the, the gumball machine. I was like, oh, that's dope. Do you oh, know wow. that this is not gumballs in here? What is that? These are all hearts. Let me show you. Wow, <laughs> son. They're hearts because I thought about this like in real life. You don't know when you're choosing a mate, you don't know who you're going to get, what their heart is like. Some of them have chains on it. Wow. Some of them have holes in it. Some of them are blue because they're cold. That's and right. to me, like, it's just like taking a risk dating somebody. Right. We see the perfect heart. It's kind of like, you know, when you were a kid and you asked your mom for that quarter because you wanted that, right. that ring right. or something, and then you got right. the stupid crap out. So you <laughs> see something, you want it, you expect to get that. But in reality, you're taking a chance and you don't know which one's going to come out. Maybe that person's not capable of love anymore. Right. Maybe that person has a wife that passed and you you know, they have that hole in their heart. You wow. just don't know. So a lot of my pieces aren't what they seem. It's a lot of thought behind right. them. Right, they have a little story behind them. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't really, I'm not good at talking and explaining myself. So I found somewhere to do that. <laughs> and listen, art is the greatest expression because because it gives you the freedom. Talk to me about your uh, becoming a woman piece. I seen that piece. I like that piece, man. I'm a gardener, so I like that. <laughs> Back to my parents. <laughs> I, growing up, they had this idea of, okay, she's so smart that she should be a doctor. Like, so they pushed that on me. I went, I have about seven years of college. I just don't, it's not, I don't feel it. Right. So I just feel like when I decided that I didn't want to go to college anymore and being a doctor wasn't for me, I feel like everybody in my family kind of threw me away. Like, uh, okay. that was the golden child. That was going to be the first doctor of the family and blah, she blah, messed blah. Up her life. She wants to paint. Like, yeah. you know, they kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? So I noticed that everyone kind of shifted away from me. Now nobody cared. Nobody wanted to speak to me like that. It just, it, it felt different. So I mm -hmm. felt like I was a seed being thrown away, but they didn't know I was going to come back out like this. Wow. I know. So that like, makes sense. Okay, I, I don't have to be a doctor to be successful or whatever. Like, I'm, I'm, I feel it in my spirit, and I'm going to do what I was supposed well, to do. <laughs> episode 19 was with Shaheen the Rugged Child. Ooh. Killer B in the building. And he responded, and he came on. He was chopping it up. I think his, his grandmother came in, shut shut it down for a little bit. Somebody knocked on the door or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He had to cut that piece out. 
Yeah, but you know something? Now, he was dope, and he was it was straightforward, it was open. Um, I really like talking to Shaheen, man. Shaheen was a good guy, man. Yeah. The behind the stories of that also is I remember when we first set up to do the interview for him. I think I was I was in Atlanta. Yeah. Time. And I know my internet was acting weird and funny. And I think he forgot about the interview time. So we had to reschedule it for right. a couple of days later. Right. Uh, you know, he was a man of his word and he came on. And I was saying to him, you know, look, thank you. You said you was gonna come on, you came on. And he was like, no, nah, if I tell somebody I'm gonna do something, I'm definitely gonna do it. And he was open, he was candid about everything, you know, from all the great things that he uh, he's accomplished and that he's done well and the mistakes he made in life. That's right. It was, it was a very open conversation, man. He was he allowed us to ask the questions that didn't didn't hide or shy away from anything that we asked, and he was straightforward. Yeah. Raheem, man, peace to the God. This um the clip we're gonna go to is one of one of one of my favorite questions that Rob asked him. Rob, you know what question that is? What about imagination? imagination. Uh, what is it what does it mean to be a killer bee? Yeah, you're in the Bronx though. <laughs> you know nothing about the Bronx, but you from Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that happens, man. Yeah. That happens, man. But they position cops. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but look, I want to ask one simple question, brother. What does it mean to be a killer bee? Oh, what does it mean to be a killer bee? I mean, you can say that. <laughs> you can say that <laughs> different different ways. You know, um, a killer bee is just like, you know. It's like metaphorically speaking, you know right. what I'm saying? Just, yes, sir. Just, you know, a killer bee stings and, and, and you know what I'm saying, they attack and they swarm and, you know, woo, we roll deep, so deep. we roll to swarm like a pack of bees. You know what I'm saying? But the killer bees, when the killer bees came, it was in business, you know what I'm saying? Everything Take shit out. Yeah. Right. That's peace, man. That's a dope shit. Because I, I love not just the woo, but the, the, the affiliation, the killer armies, everybody. But it still yeah. had that signature to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just the way y'all did the way. Yeah, so that was a dope interview with, um, with Shaheen. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we transitioned from interviewing Shaheen to another great find that I think that, um, that Zane found also. Arash Malek, the founder of Scent Wedge. Now, this was another one of those interviews that behind the scenes, we we had deliberation as to if we thought that it would be a good interview for our platform. And I'll be honest with you, I think in the end it turned out to be a real it turned out to be a really good discussion. My apprehension about it initially was thinking that the what, man what would our listeners take from it. Yeah, that was my apprehension. The man yeah. is fascinating, and I knew everything that he was doing. He's an engineer, everything that he's doing is interesting. I just didn't want, I personally didn't want to feel like because it's something that I have an interest in that that's applicable to all the listeners. But when it was all said and done and we looked at the views, apparently the viewers actually liked what he was talking about also. They enjoyed it, man. And this little engineering idea for that scent wedge for Tesla, like who thinks of stuff like that? That was a dope show. Yeah, yeah. And Arash Malek is right out the bay too. And it's crazy because he talked, you know, didn't he share with us? He said that he was a producer. That was our first techie show, wasn't it? Yeah, but he said he said something like, Yeah, I produced, I was producing, making beats or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so his brother's a producer, engineer, making um face masks at the height of COVID, taking exactly. pictures of the test. Yeah. He's Just making the shield. The shield you yeah. see everywhere, and he's making those. Great, great find.
by Zane. Stop the Zane. Where you at, Zane? And we're joined today by Arash Malek. What's up, Arash? How you how you doing, man? Hey, I'm good, man. Alive. How are you? I'm doing well. Where, where you where you currently at now? Uh, I'm in Berkeley, California right now. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I'm in Connecticut, but I'd rather be where you are. <laughs> yeah, I know the weather. Yeah. I know the weather's great over there, right? Yeah, it's great. It's always good. It's so always I'm good. out in Maryland. All right. So you're involved currently, you know, you're involved in a number of projects, but nothing more timelier than what you're doing with the, with the face shield. How hard was it for you to pivot from doing your thing with Scent Wedge? And I know you have involvement with uh, Tesla also to now making these face shields. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it was it was a moment of just realizing that, uh, you know, if the medical professionals, you know, contract COVID and, you know, whether they get seriously ill or not, they're still out of the game for like 14 days. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the moment of realization that just, you know, I realized I had the tools to do something um, and I had the design background to do something. So, I mean, doing nothing would have been the wrong to do you know so uh, it was it was literally just a moment of realization and the next day i was making face shields or working on the design and so the design itself took like a week um to to try and you know make something that's super efficient and and cost effective and easy to produce mm -hmm. um and then after that it was just straight to production uh, making as many as i could and you know iterating along the process uh, along the way too uh, lots of iterations so I think by the end of it, I had three different iterations mm -hmm. um, while in production. And so, yeah, uh, and just based on feedback from all the people that were using it um, and, and, and along the way, like increasing efficiency as well. Um, you know, the, the, from the beginning, the plastic that I was using, um, you know, was really unorthodox for face shields. Uh, you know, it was, you know, the screen itself was made from overhead projector sheets that I, you know, remember back wow, from elementary school. Uh, and, uh, and the plastic that I was using was, you know, acrylic that wasn't yet being used for, um, you know, these screens. But now a lot of the acrylics being used for divider screens at stores, you know, mm -hmm. so there's, there's, there's it's becoming right. a problem. Um, it's becoming a problem. And so that kind of shifted me to iterate and redesign a little bit to be able to use any size thickness of plastic um, because I was using 316 before um, mm -hmm. but that becomes it, it's become very popular for you know the, the countertop or the you know the counter dividers yeah. um, at the checkouts so um, yeah but yeah I mean the process for me was just yeah it was it, it was very intuitive it was very fast in, in a way like everything kind of came together really really fast and you know it was it was a product of uh, you know um desperation really you know yeah. just trying to do something and, it, uh, did you collaborate with anybody and putting the design together or was it just you that no that was just me um it was basically well so it was me um coming up with the design and then i had a friend who's a respiratory therapist who i hit up and just had him try it on Smart. you know just just so we can get it on a different head and also just see how it fits and and if it's you know beneficial once he gave me the green light is when i actually ran to production to start making them um, but yeah, I mean, originally, you know, it was based off feedback from him for sure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole, it was really important to make it reusable because, you know, most face shields with the foam forehead piece aren't reusable mm -hmm. because you can't sterilize it. 
Um, so the idea was to create something that's super affordable, super cheap, and also, you know, um, non-porous. So nothing, right. it doesn't absorb anything. You can use yeah, it. Right. You can reuse it. Yeah, you can reuse it. Exactly. And then, and then also all the parts are designed to be snapped off and, and replaced as needed. So it was really to reduce the waste. And I had no idea how wasteful the medical industry was until Very. I started looking into face shields. Yeah. And I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, that was, that was really eye-opening, um, but uh, yeah. What's, what's the cost associated with manufacturing one of them? Like how much? Yeah, so, so, so it was around $3 um, was what I estimated, uh, but that was- 21. Episode 21, I have in my top five. Yeah, that's what Episode I was 21 was Dr. Garfield Bright from the group Shy. I thought that that was to me, I that was Man. Yeah, that was like hands down, like one of my favorite conversations that we had with somebody and the energy exchange in the conversation. I really appreciate it. You know, like a lot of people we bring on and we just hit them with questions right. and they answer to the best of their ability. But for right. with him, the dialogue seems so. And and, and it's the word. It, it just seemed natural, right? It just seemed like it, it, at the barbershop building. Yeah, it flowed very 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 smoothly and he didn't he didn't mind elaborating like we ask a question he'll go off and there's something else relating to the question but then give a, a, a comparable or something related and then jump into some of his personal life it's a dope place man he was, it was a dope show definitely dope show. you know what you know what i was how i could tell at the interview was really really going crazy because we probably spent, we spoke to him, it had to be about two hours, probably 10 minutes of that interview was actually about shy and music. <laughs> right. You know that? Like That's the rest right. of the interview was about his time at Howard, um, his time in the nation. Yeah, he's part of the nation. Social justice. Dick Gregory's daughter. Wow, I forgot about yeah, that. it was to me. It was just like that's what I said. I got that. In, I got that in one of my. That's one of my top five favorites. That I, the replay value on it, like you know, I watch these interviews. Um, you know, of course, I'm present when we do them, and I'm listening to everything that people say. Right. Then when we go to edit, I see it in editing. Then when it premieres, I see it when it premieres. But I've watched that over again, over and over again in my spare time because I just think like, yeah, so that's one of my favorites. This is a dope conversation. Interview, man. We, we, we did some research for that guy because he was so interesting. Mm -hmm. Here it is, a, a former R&B singer, Grammy winner. He's a professor. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 two didn't, the two didn't make sense until you find out his story. And it's like, oh. Okay. <laughs> And, and, and Dr. Garfield Bright said that anytime we needed him, he'd be willing to come back on. So don't be surprised if y'all don't see him back on sometime soon. And he, and he was kind enough to even shout my sister out. Got oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, you, did your sister see the shout out? What did she say? What? He was elated. Like, he spoke to me. <laughs> you know how they get. You know. Episode 21, Dr. Garfield Bright. <laughs> But yeah, all wow. that was going on. And at the time in at Howard in DC, it was the crack era. So when when I was in the nation, that was the time when two things big happened. Dr. Abdullah Ali Muhammad was running for Congress for hmm. the first time ever. So where were the votes gonna come from? Because this was a non-traditional move. So literally right. we went to all the hoods from PG County all over DC 
when we were getting doing voter rock jobs that actually go to door to door to people who would never ever think of voting to show them Dr. Eileen that this will be a candidate who ain't like a politician, somebody who's going to put himself into the fray of electoral politics, but he's a real brother that would, whatever he say he's going to do, if he say he's going to do something for you on that level, he's going to actually do it if elected. Yeah. And they believed it, but we had to like sign people up, man. It was grueling, like 15, 16 hour days, summer, the whole summer. And then we went right from there. So the Nation of Islam started getting security contracts because what we were doing was taking over project housing projects right. and ridden them of like, you know, stopping the drug dealers because a lot of these like Mayfair mansions, a lot of like elderly living in these projects scared to death to like you can come out. Come outside. Terrorized probably. Without no weapons, man. We was just setting up patrols 24-7 in these spots. And kind of I tell you, when the, F, when the FOI show up, things change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we got shot at and different things like that, but we held it down and we persevered and after a minute, it showed and proved that you know, with the love move and the love concept, and they knew we weren't armed, so it, the conscience of a brother couldn't go, but so far just to, mm -hmm. right. you know, a couple of them tried, but most, on the most part, it was a heated exchanges often because we was messing up their money. <laughs> but at the same time, they understood why we was doing it for grandma, you know what I mean? Like yeah. was, and a lot of grandmas, the crack houses was grandma's house because she couldn't really, you know, defend herself against the young grandson who was doing that, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. those, he was running up in crack houses, man, dudes trying to shoot the gun, wouldn't go, it was crazy. But we, we really were like, Doing that, so we started. The nation was getting government contracts for for a minute, mm -hmm. and so um, I was one of the youngest site supervisors because you know all cable buildings are federal, and so I was like a like by Howard there was a cable building on on 13th Street, or 14th Street anyway. They put me in charge of that because since I was a college student and dealing with the administrators at the cable building, they kind of wanted to know a collegiate type of face to interact and mm -hmm. I, right. I pulled it down. I was bright enough. And everything and but it was crazy because at the age of what 19 i was on um, like in a leadership position as a manager of that site over grown men who were like 40 and 50 and i had 12 employees that i was juggling their schedule and nobody wanted to work this one shift and i had to work the midnight to noon shift like that was against nature and go to high go to school wow it was crazy man but i was a young, yeah, I got married a young it was just a crazy I, I was doing a lot as a young shorty so before shy Man, I had grown up a lot real quick. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Let me, hey, let me ahead, ask you, because, because um, your master's is in African-American studies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's because uh, of Howard's influence. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, like, um, you know, everything that we have going on in the world right now and race, race relations is something that's, like, a hot topic for everybody. I often hear people say, like, for um, the police force, they'll say things like, well, we need to hire more uh, minorities, which to me is a simplistic fix if we have a corrupt system, you know, and I liken it sometimes to you look at the New England, the New England Patriots, right? You, um, Bill Belichick could drop anybody in that system and they'll flourish because the system is designed to help people excel. What's your opinion on, on, on race relations and, you know, how do we begin, I guess, to, to move forward? Race relations suck and they suck because <laughs> we do everything in society based on binaries with the misinterpretation of opposite as versus as opposed to complementary. So that and capitalism, which is, and I'm not talking about just America, because even in communist countries, the, the global game is global mm -hmm. capitalism. So right. we talking about supply and demand period, which has a built in race component period. And, um, you know, cause my theoretical framework was critical race theory coming from critical legal studies, which says that race is woven into society. End of discussion. There mm -hmm. is no, I wonder if, and no, I'm starting from the premise that racism exists and it's, it's it's ubiquitous. Of course. So from there, 
dealing with that, race and class can't be separated. There's racialized class, even, like, you know, so all of those things. But the binary, the way, we, the way we deal with each other as humans, we constructed race to navigate a faux reality based on a matrix that we kind of invented also as a construct, mm -hmm. conceptualized humans through the race piece. The only thing was that through postmodernism, with, with the European establishing themselves as European and moving westward and deciding to, you know, to enrich the countries and, and, and go through different places and encounter different colors, they have this concept called true possession, where the white conceptual whiteness felt like possession was not true unless they established it. So when they would go to America and find quote unquote Native Americans doing Native Americanness, mm -hmm. that was not truly something that was opposed to stick proprietarily speaking to the white concept concept because they it was rough it was raw it wasn't something you know in their mind it was barbaric as opposed mm -hmm. to cultural yeah and so they because of that felt like those people forfeited their right to possess that identity that they created let me give you one that suits me better that i think you would look better on mm -hmm. and that concept whiteness starts to function as property and those who possess that property are protected from its ravishes, its collateral damage. You know what I mean? So you start getting whiteness as property and then the binaries created because the rugged individualism and, and the, uh, the competition aspect of, of capital, uh, the marketplace, dialectical mm. materialism. So even if I'm cool with you in the classroom, let's put it in the local way. If I'm cool with you in the classroom, Joe and Rosie are both my people, my friends, my ride or die. At some level, the structure, when you talk about structure, uh, is skewed um, in its own self, not as a mistake, but as as a byproduct of its natural design, haves and have-nots, that I'm competing with Rosie and, and, and Joey because I need to get a scholarship and it's limited, so maybe I'm competing with them through grades to get the scholarship. Like, it's always putting me as a, in a competition-based piece with my fellow brother and sister, and then we start to conflate that over time with that's what humans naturally are, it's competitive. Mm -hmm. And I, I beg to differ. I think that if, if put in a system with equanimity, and see, the whole thing is imagination. You have to out-imagine this. Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost audacious to imagine a system that is not based on haves and have-nots, which is going to create an imbalance on the floor to any structure you build off of capitalism or that dialectic is going to be skewed because the whole system skewed. is not the skewed. Yeah. You can't build an equitable, uh, equitable thing on an inequitable framework itself. Yeah. It ain't going to ever work. It's like, yeah. it's like a funnel that you drop into that, uh, your oil. When you put your oil in, that little funnel, it's like thinking that there's some other destination that even though there's a wide circumference up there, like it ain't going to end up at that little point at the bottom. Like you're fooling yourself if you think structure is already there. It's going to end up there. Before you even put it in, you know where it's going to end up because the structure is telling you. Well, I, the, you know, so. the sad thing about that is I think as people of color, we've, we've lived that experience, although we may not be able to articulate it, but I think the challenge is sometimes getting white people to understand that just as what you're describing actually exists. You know, it's a real struggle to get white people to believe that white privilege exists because... That's true. Like, in the disconscious racism, Dr. Joyce King was mm -hmm. one of my mentors. She talked about disconscious. And so racism, if you've been in that position of benefiting from it, that's just been your normal. You haven't right. even really checked mm -hmm. what the hell's going on. Yeah. You can't even fathom that. And it might not even be some kind of egregious or thing that you're doing in a pejorative way. You just, the way you've lived, you just never, you know, you might just be so yeah. self-centered just in your flow, not even knowing it, that you just... Yeah beating up all kind of people not realizing <laughs> like Blind, yeah blindly you don't even know what's going on it's, it's because, it's, because <laughs> it's insidious though it's you know it's, it's insidious and it's just, it's just like you said it's just all that people people know i don't know what we do you know to help people understand that white privilege exists and that this this paradigm you know this world that is people of color that we're, we live in 
that this is a, this is a reality, you know, because what happens is I think sometimes people get roped into comparing oppression. So you'll have people that they want to disassociate themselves away from being an oppressor. And they'll say, well, my family was originally from Ireland. And, you know, when they came here, they weren't enslaved or they had this issue or that issue. And then it just really becomes about comparing oppression and atrocities. And, and they just and people just lose the whole message in terms of what it actually is. You know, so yeah, there's so many standpoints who have a narrative that is not even included in the narrative that's supposed to be the normative narrative, which shows you that other things exist outside of this narrative that's supposed to include everything that paints the picture. If those things exist and it ain't in there, that means that this thing don't account for everything. Mm -hmm. So you know, you got the feminist standpoint because of the inequity. You got you know the gender thing. So you you got you know you got the black, white, the, all the binaries. Anything that's a binary is always going to be one first past the post. Episode 22. Heat makers. Heat makers, another Bronx, another Bronx affiliation, the heat makers. You know, this to me, I, I enjoyed this, um, this interview also. I have to say that speaking to him made me really go back and listen, listen to that El Capo album again. Because the first time when I listened to it, you know, I listened, I skimmed through it. I was like, okay, there's some good music on there. But after listening to him, just talking, you know, talking detail, I was like, I need to give this, you know, a listen with more thorough ears. So I went back and listened to it. I was like, man, like, this is, this is probably Jim Jones' best work. Yo, and Jim is putting out a lot of work now. I know. Exclusively Heatmaker production. Like, yeah. almost doing all the Jim stuff right now. And yeah. Jim is out there working. But I've yeah. always liked the heat makers. Their 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 choice selection and you know just just the way they they their beat selection, the way they make beats, it's always stand. They already they signature the diplomat sound, like yeah, that's the diplomat sound. Heat maker. Yeah, yeah, and he's um I liked what he was saying about like the um you know when you sit down with musicians who technically know how to make music, right. and he was saying that it's much more difficult to make music with them versus people who don't really know and go right. off bill. Like I thought, I thought that was dope commentary and and very observant on his part also, and you know why? Because I was thinking about it, and to me, it's applicable to. I always tell people this also. You know, to me, just because a person knows, sometimes a person can know so much that they can't get out of their own way, right? Like if you so boxed in, like no, this is the absolute way that it needs to be. This is how it's supposed to go. Yeah, you have tunnel vision and it stymies your creativity. But if you don't know. Then it's just like everything is a blank canvas. Like, oh, I could just do this and do that or whatever. And it feels good. It sounds good. So to hear him say that with the level of success that he had, I'm like, oh, okay, all right. We on to something here. You might think I'm lying to you, man. Like, it was probably like a good two years I was just locked in, just just trying to get better. Trying but to learn that stuff. Like that. And it didn't even feel like that to me because I just I just wanted to get better so bad that the days didn't feel like weeks and months would pass. And it just felt like, one long ass day to me, you know what I mean? Like, I can't describe the feeling to you when you really love something and you want to learn it and you want to figure it out and get better. Time isn't really like a time is no obstacle to you. Right. You kind of just deal with the time. You know what I mean? Right. Let me ask you this question because I usually ask artists, artists, because I consider you an artist. I know you're a producer, but creativity right. comes in there at a great deal. How important to you is imagination? It's super important. That's why you hear a lot of artists, like, before they get out of their natural element, like, if they're from the hood or wherever they're from, their first project or their first their first bit of work is usually their most defined work because 
that's everything bottled up in like all their imagination, all their thoughts, everything they ever wanted to get out of, out of their brain is like that first project. And then after that, it takes the extra creative artist to keep pulling from that same place. But if you notice, you'll see a lot of artists be like, I went back to my old neighborhood to write this album because mm -hmm. they trying to find that they trying to find that imagination, that feel, that creativity because mm -hmm. they think they left it there. You know what I'm saying? That's Meanwhile, right. it's really it's really inside of you. Like, I, I strongly believe that, like, I made records like Dipset Anthem, and I don't think I'll ever be able to make another Dipset Anthem, not because I'm not as good, it's just because where I'm at in my life, my my my, my brain is different, I think different, My the way I feel about things are different, the way I handle things are different, so my music is going to reflect that. Yes, when sir. I made Dipset Anthem, I was a young kid from the Bronx that was just hungry and excited about making music and couple of dollars in my pocket and I wasn't really concerned with success in the music game I just wanted people to respect me musically so I was right. trying to make the hardest beats possible right right my mind my mind frame is different now you know what I'm saying completely different yeah I see that let me ask you 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 have a um the heat makers have a signature sound you know you have a distinct sound is right. that what you were going for when you started out like to have a signature sound or is it just something that mm -hmm. came about? Everybody, you know, a lot of people think that like I sat down and 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 it was like a a premeditated thing to create a sound. For me, it was never that. It was just I worked with what I had. Like I didn't play the keys. I had a bunch of reggae records laying around the crib because my parents, you know, I'm Jamaican. My parents are Jamaican, so we didn't right. really have like we didn't have like hip hop and R and B and disco yeah, records. We had, had dub plates. <laughs> I didn't not dub plate. We had like records. We had like you know, various. Um, Barris, yes. Bob Marley, Budrick, Capleton. You know what I mean? We had records like that around the crib. So for me, I knew I had to sample, but I never used to like to listen to records at regular speed. I used to always listen to records at 45, even before I was making beats, because it just sounded, it had a feel to me and it sounded better. And I started doing that and using the records I had. And before you know it, people just said a sound was created. You know what I mean? And it was right. just me working with what I had. Yeah, man, because I, I think I've heard you say it was a plan, you know, working with Cam and y'all creating that sound. Y'all, even with, what was it, with Old Boy, he came up with some sort of, no, I forgot what song it was, but y'all collaborated, so I'm going to do this, and you took that. I'm going to do that, and you took that, and all of a sudden you had this, this dipset sound. Um, what, what is named the dipset sound? Yeah, because honestly, what it was was like you, when I met. When I, before I met Cam, when I met Cam's manager at the time and I gave him a CD with about 15, it was about 15 tracks on there, nine of those records ended up on Diplomatic Community. So wow. our, the sound that you hear in Diplomatic Community is a sound that we had, but rappers didn't know how to attack it until we met Dipset. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, right, right, Because right. like, if you listen to like I'm Ready, I'm Ready is not a typical beat where it's like, you know, like how they have four counts of a beat. It's really like a swing beat. So it, it takes a rapper to, to really sit sit down and figure out a flow to that beat. And a lot Rhythm, of the things yeah. that we did. So, you know, we just met the perfect match at the time. And then our combination created that sound. You know, yeah, I was saying um, our combination is what birthed that sound. You know, Dipset mm -hmm. combined with Heatmakers birthed that sound. I wouldn't put it all on me. I wouldn't put it all on them. I think it was just a perfect combination. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Y'all made some joints, y'all. Y'all made some. Even, and you spoke about how your music, you know, from you wasn't the kid down. Even when I hear my Aaron Cocaine Dream, and I'm like, this shit grew up. Yeah. Like, the fuck? This shit got some years yeah. on it right now. I feel, them yeah, songs is different. hard. 
It's a different swing I, to it, son. You know what it's like, man. I think it's like it's like a it's like being a young superhero and you don't really know how to use your powers yet. You know what I mean? Like as I got older, I figured that. out how to use the I, I figured out how to use the powers I had to to make shit like El Capo. You know what I mean? Like the younger version of me couldn't have made El Capo. I'd have did too much. The older version of me knows where to stop. Like I right, cool. This record is That's enough done. of this. Yeah. Right. You understand? Yeah. So yeah. That's where I'm at in my life now. I just feel like like El Capo was the first project that let me know that like I'm a bona fide producer. Not just a dude that make beats. Like I'm a bona fide producer. Like I made every last record on there. Me and Jim arranged it. Like that album. Right. Me and Jim put that album together from top to bottom. Every beat on there I made, every lyric he wrote. You understand? Like so to me, the fact that we could do that together and have people call it one of the best albums they heard in a long time, right. that means something to me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That means and a lot to me, to be honest. And it, and it came at a time where Jim is ascending as well. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You right. can tell the maturity in his music, too. It's like, yo, son, you know what? This shit is hot. Fuck what you're but saying, you know son. Like, listen to this shit. You got to listen to it, though. Yeah. You can't just Sometimes take it for granted. The music pushes you sometimes to become that artist. You know what I mean? Like, if people keep giving you the music you're accustomed to and, like, heavy street hardcore with, without no extra things to it, then you're going to rap about that same type of thing and it's going to feel the same. I think I gave him, like, a wide array of different sounds on this project mm -hmm. so he could really get off and let people know that he really gets busy. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. Talk, sure. talk a little bit about, I guess, like, your, your evolution as a producer because you just said something that really resonated with me. You were saying that, you know... The, um, the older producer would have probably added on so many other things, but now the producer you are, you, you sort of come to the conclusion that sometimes less is best. What does it take to get yeah. there? I think it takes belief in yourself, man, because I think a lot of producers, they feel as if there's certain, in their head, there's certain elements that have to be in a beat. Like if I do a beat, I need kicks and I need snares, I need hi-hats, I need... You don't really need anything. It's like you're really just searching for a feel. Mm -hmm. Like when I make music, I'm searching for a feel. When I get that feel, I stop. Like when you listen to El Capo, for the love of the hustle, has no drums on it. Maybe in a couple parts I put a little drums in there, but 90% of the record is no drums. Because to me, it felt right like that. Right. Yeah. And then on top of that, I'm working on an album. So every record doesn't have to have the same elements in it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what right. helps paint the picture of an album. And I, you know, I learned all, all that over time, but Again, the younger version of me would have put drums all over that record and probably <laughs> fucked it up. Yeah, you know, you know, who it kind of reminds me of. I think about like some of um, RZA's production. Like RZA is somebody to me that when I really first heard RZA, I was like, yeah, like yo, wait a minute, these loops ain't uh, not necessarily even on. You know, it just like RZA to me is somebody who just took whatever element he felt and threw it in the record and didn't, and didn't necessarily feel like well, mathematically this stuff needs to connect and go together. But it was brilliant and it was genius to it. Yeah, I think I think the more you know when it comes to like the science of music, the less the, the, the less you experiment. You know what All I mean? Right. Like I've I've worked with dudes that that play keys in the in the in the in the church choir and then you get them and try to produce the record with them and they can't do it because they thinking about the science of music and no, nah, this chord can't come after this chord. Mm -hmm. Why not? Does it sound good? If it sounds good, do it. <laughs> Let it go. Let it fly. That's like, right. right. You understand? Like ninety percent of the people that listen to music, they don't understand the theory behind music. They mm -hmm. just know what sounds good to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you deliver that feel, nothing else matters to me. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times, 
there's been more records than you know, past and present, where they might not have been in key, might not have been in tune, the timing might have been off a little bit, but that's what made it a great record at the end of the day. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, depending on the record. Yeah, it's those imperfections that make it perfect. Yeah, and yeah. I, and, I, and I can I can I can hear like your sound. I I give I, give, I put categories and shit. That's just me. I'm just that way. Your sound to me is I mix a sound clash hip hop. Like when you hear it, you're, you're ready to like like I'm on the side of a carnival boat. And I'm just ready to march, yo. That's how deep it is. Yeah, and I, and I, talk 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 I, about I don't know, talk man. about that part. For me, like I said, I've always said before, I don't care what music sounds like, I care what it feels like. You know right. what I mean? Because when we think about music from the past that moved us, we don't think about the sound quality. We don't think, we just know this it was my good. shit. And then episode 23, this was one oh. I was in, in, in particular, like really, really close and near and dear to, um, to, to Rob. You know, we have Mike Hands. And Mike Hands, I have to say, like, yo, salute to Mike Hands. The brother came on and did the interview while he was doing dialysis. At dialysis. Yeah. How about so, that? That's a chance yeah. move right there. So for him to make that commitment to follow through, because he could have easily said, like, no, nah, I can't do it. You know, I'm at dialysis. For him to follow through and do it. And he gave us his, he gave us his full attention. Mm -hmm. He's going off and on that. Shout out to Mike Hands. Yeah. This here, quintessential, a soldier, a warrior. This guy doesn't... I don't even know if quit is even in his vocabulary. Because this man is out there, even just, just going through what he's going through, and he's right back in the you know what I'm saying, right back in the mix of things trying to get things done. This interview I enjoyed because him and I do share, you know, the situation of the kidney situation. But in situations like that, it's good to have someone to, to lean on, to talk to, to share, you know, what the journey that you're going through during this time. I think I really, I really enjoyed this conversation with Mike. Yeah, you know what was what was cool to me? Like I don't know if you caught in the interview, but it was really he was paying homage to you, Rob. Because yeah. he was saying he was saying he was like, you know what? Like you you have the information, you've been where mm -hmm. I'm trying to get. Mm -hmm. And it was it was more so a, um a discussion where you was telling him like what's to be expected. And shortly after that, he got he got the transplant, he got a kidney. Right. Like almost, almost like a, like a couple of weeks after that. You talk about speaking into existence. Hold on, how about that? Yeah, and, and and that came about. Nels was like, "Yo, you remember him? He used to go. He used to be at the studio." I was like, "Nah." He said, "No, nah, I think you should reach out to him." You seen a video? He was at dialysis, and he was talking about the um the injection of the needle. So I reached out to him, sent him a little note, just just saw some kidney warrior shit. Look. I know what you're going through. Just take your time. Gave him some jewels. And from that on, we created this bond. I said, you know what? This dude, I got interviews to. Mm -hmm. That's how all that took about. So shout out to Mike Hands, man. Yeah, yeah Mike Hands is a good brother, man. He and Nell's Kitchen still owe you a dinner, brother. Yeah, he's a good brother. And the other thing that people should know about Mike Hands, like that's one part of his story. But if you look at some of the stuff that brother doing in the community, you, yeah. if you go to this page, you look, it's always food. Food donation, toy drives, you name it. Like he's active in the community. Strictly right. level because my white blood cells was going past all the program. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know I mean? so they had to they had to, to put me through a process where I had to freeze my my plasma and my blood or something like that. So they allowed the program to work along with the plasma. And they got it down, they got it down to a level 
to where I can accept the program and my white blood cells would just kind of just fade away and just, you know what I mean? I didn't have to worry about them rejecting the kidney, but it was an ordeal. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the kidney lasted for seven years. And then when it failed, I knew exactly what I was going through. I said, I'm going back to dialysis. Mm. I know but I you already knew the program. I already knew the program, man. Yeah. And yeah, see, this is what I don't get. I don't get to build with many people on the other side. Like, I've mastered this version. Right. That, that's nothing. I that's nothing. Build with many people after the the transplant, you know? Right. Um, because, again, like everything else, I've come to know this part is new. Well, post-transplant, post-transplant is really a process of you. All right, now, now your lifestyle has changed. You have a foreign object in you, and your whole goal is to not have that object be Detected. kicked Rejected. out. Yeah. Rejected. That's that is that's on that's on your browser for the rest of your life. How to not yep. to get rejected. So mm. your diet is going to change. You can you can kind of resort to some of the way you was living because you're going to have the energy back. You're going to feel the difference of that. But the timing of when you take your medicine, the first thing you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you take your meds, you eat. Mm. Whatever regimen that you're on. In regard in, in regards to your medicine, you do not break stride. I don't care where you at, you take your medicine with you. Whatever time of the night, if they tell you twelve hours, if you take it one in the morning, you gotta take it one in the afternoon. Don't take it at one thirty. Don't take it at twelve thirty. Take it at one when they say. That's reason, what I do now. The reason for doing that is that your body, like anything else, needs to build up the 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 the, the attention for dealing with that because your body, your your brain is going through a whole different process. Even when you're on dialysis, sometimes that's why you feel lethargic when you come out because your brain is like, what the fuck just happened? I know I got a kidney, but something else is doing the job for the kidney. Mm -hmm. How was all that working? You know what I'm saying? So on top of taking your meds, you almost have to rethink the way you want your body to work. You have to be in your mind and be like, yo, I can't do that no more. Now nah, I got to do this. Nah, I, have to, I have to get sleep. I need some rest. You know what I'm saying? There, there's, there's periods of times where you have to follow strict code of what you're doing. So now, make, after make two... lifestyle change. Yo, after, after, after a year, after two, you start being... You walk around with your pill case, you know it, bang. You're booking in there. And what progression that happened is your nephrologist and your, and your, your kidney team... Or watch your progression. They'll watch you eating better. Your health is coming. Your, your hemoglobins are starting to come back. Those are your red blood cells. Mm -hmm. So if your red blood cells and your red blood cell count is high, that's a that's a great sign. You know what I'm saying? Because that means your cells' reproduction is back in rhythm right. yeah. the way your body used to be. You know what I'm saying? The only thing is that kidney's a foreign object. And you got them white boys at the door. Yeah, and, and that, that kidney, it never actually settles in. It's always a visitor. It's always a visitor. It's always a visitor. So let me ask you this, Mike. You travel a lot. You move around a lot. You know, how, how does that really affect you, man? Uh, I sleep a lot. Get a lot of rest? When I'm on the road, I'm always sleeping, resting, or whatever it is to do. My only focus is the show. Right. So, so you save Save up your I'm energy really, for the show. I'm, yeah, I'm not really seeing the city too much and all that. 
Um, I'm really try, trying to reserve my energy for the show. Okay. Mm. When, when, did you get di- when did you get diagnosed? 2008. Oh, okay. Mm. I didn't fail to 2018, though. Mm. Okay, wow. That was a while, man. That was a 10-year stretch. Yeah, they so, put me on a, a preventative regimen, so I, I was, so that's why, as I'm listening to you, I feel a little more confident because having to train myself and adhere to a regimen and all that, I've had so much practice thus far. I was able to keep it at bay for 10 years. And I'm going to be honest, I wasn't as strict on my regimen as I could have been. Right, right. And 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 you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to, you know, humans are creatures of habit and pattern. There's just certain patterns and certain habits that is so succinct, very hard to break. But it's like it's like tying your sneaker, man, brushing your teeth. You've been doing the same routine for so long, and now you have to change. Yeah. It's cold. You got to go cold turkey. That's difficult, man. That's very difficult. Yeah. It was, man. And uh, how about this? When I got diagnosed and they first put me on this preventative regimen, I was leaving for Europe for the first time like a month later. Right. For three weeks. Wow. So I had to go and keep myself disciplined away from home. Right. That's right. It was hard. It was hard. But my was people tough. that was out there was on point because, you know, before I came, I let them know what was going on. So they kind of catered to it. Mm. Right. Right. And it's a lifestyle change for them. Yeah. yeah. Even my buddies now, when we go out, we go to, if, if even if we go to like a concert, I tell them, I said, look, here's my pill case. If if you see a nigga getting weak, sit my ass down, get me some water. If it gets to the point where I, I'm incoherent, I got a, I had a chain that had the number the and the medical? hotline and the medical mm-hmm. number to call and let them know, look, Rob ain't feeling right. They'll tell you what to do. And that's how you got to roll. And if your peoples is with you, they got they got yeah. the first aid kick bag with them, yeah. <laughs> the pill bag, all that. And... They'll, they'll take care of you, bro. For real, man. By the grace of God, man, I have yet to have that version. Um, my dad died of this shit, right? Mm. So I watched my dad live with this for 10, for 10 years, 82 okay. to 92. Wow. Wow, wow. What was my what's version? The reason, what's the reason, though? Is hypertension or diabetes? Well, hypertension is mine. His was hypertension as well, but I think he had another viral situation mm, right. that nobody really told him about. But okay. with that said, he was in the, in the military, got discharged in 82 because of it, and brought us back to New York, and I watched him grind with it. But he had a horrible, horrible go with it. Right. Um, that's not the version I've ever had. Mm. Body grace of God, you know what I mean? That's right. That's right. Um, it's been hard, it's been rough at moments, but nothing like what I saw in both. Right. So after you got diagnosed, what were some of the immediate like lifestyle changes that you made? Dietary mostly. Sure. Then um, you know, I was the uh hold on one second, mm-hmm. they cannulate. That's right. Part of my patients. Cannulations when they sticking them needles in his, okay. and it's either he's have a graft or he has a fistula. Fistula. 
and it's a little it's like a little buttonhole with a needle right in. Nah, that's not what my life is, brother. Like I got the fistula and um I don't I don't use the buttonholes. I try not to let them stick me in the same place. Okay. So that I don't get the um the aneurysms. So it's not a fish it's not a graph, because I have not a graph. graph. It's a fistula. I have yeah. a graph, it's like a loop. Yeah. And they and they it's and they rubber loop. Right. Yeah. Mine is a fistula where they took the artery in the vein and they, they, they fused them to create a, a resilient super vein, for lack of better terms. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So they interchange the cannulation spots every time you go. That's crazy. Yeah, so right. that's, that's, good, that's, the li- that's, that's the lifeline right there, bro. Yeah, brother. Episode 25, Jamaic Woods. Episode 25 was, I think, Zane's debut on camera. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that was Zane's debut on camera. And I remember after that interview, it was dope talking to Jamaic Woods, but I remember after that interview, calling Zane up and be like, yo, brother, why are you on TV looking like a mobster? You got on a tank top. Get it together. Yo, Zane, <laughs> his backdrop and where you become, yo, he's a, he's, a, he's a pure character, man. I love it. <laughs> so that was Zane's debut. So that, that interview is, is sentimental to me because that's the first time Zane actually appeared on camera with us. With us. Um, and then I have to say, talking to Jamaic Woods was like. He's a good kid, man. Been, Huh? He's a good kid. Yeah, I was gonna say I would, that may have been like one of the easiest free-flowing interviews that we've ever done. It, it was just like it was almost like we were interviewing him to see if he wanted to go to No Ideas Original Podcast <laughs> Prep School, right? He was just like so so buttoned up and straight laced, yeah, clean with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We was practice. We was practice for when he really had him interviews out there in the world. Yeah, but you know what? I I, I like the fact that he gave us some insight into actually. The you know game speed and mm-hmm. what it really takes and everything and you know I asked him about Jim Harbaugh if Jim Harbaugh was really <laughs> yeah and you know he was he was open very good dude but that's, that's it. growing up in Alabama like because Alabama is is Alabama world right there. yeah like hey I, I was an Auburn fan anyway so <laughs> <laughs> shout out to the Tigers man oh yeah. It, it's just such rich tradition and history with Alabama that I would think that, you know, like growing up in Alabama, you'd be like, Yo, you know what, my dream is to play football for Alabama. But I would imagine with the program that they have at Alabama and the kind of recruiting that they do, that is probably like it's so competitive, like to actually have the opportunity to get on the field. It's probably much more difficult than other programs. Oh, yeah, most definitely. They, they recruiting dogs every year, you know. They're not going to have anybody that they think that can't play. So it's definitely competitive down there. So what, talk about how was it the transition from the high school level to the NCAA level, NCAA level, the speed of the game, and what did you have to work on to, 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 to strengthen your game or improve your game? Uh, I'll say the number one thing was just the mental aspect of it. The game is a lot faster, so one wrong step, you know, you can be out of place in a right. big play. So as far as athletically, Everybody on college level is probably about the same. You know, you still have your freaks out there and everything, but mm. it really comes down to who knows the playbook and who knows the who knows what they're doing. That's right. You know, it's time to play. So I That's feel right. like that mental aspect was the biggest jump from like biggest challenge for me coming in for the freshman. That's mm. right. Yeah. Now, uh, 
back back when you played for Michigan, were there any athletes that you was like, damn, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta check this dude as far as like wide receivers or running backs that's coming through the hole? Oh man, man, my my class personally, we probably had the best group of receivers come through there. We had Nico Collins, mm-hmm. Reed Black, Donovan Peoples Jones, and then uh, above me too, they had the running back Chris Evans. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a lot of weapons over there on the offense, and I'm like, man, like. I never, I never had to play these guys before, and I'm out of playing every day in practice. But it actually got me better. You know, we competed, and it was just fun being out there with those guys. And now they're doing their thing, and I'm doing mine. So it was a blessing. Right. Yeah, yes, you, sir. you said you said something I think is very important that I think a lot of times people don't realize, and not only in football but in any sport, the mental aspect of the game. I think what happens early on in sports is you rely solely on your physical attributes. And there are some people, like you said, that their physical attributes, they're just freakish, that they, you know, they run faster, they jump higher, they're stronger. But that mental piece, there are people that I've seen that may not necessarily be physically as gifted, but mentally they're stronger. They know the playbook. They know the ins and outs. They know all of these different things. Talk about from your perspective as a player, like how does somebody get to that point? How do you develop to get to the point where where mentally – you're a better player because physically you could go in the weight room and lift as much as you know as possible. Right, right. Number one thing is film study. Film will tell the tale. That eye in the sky don't lie. So you just sitting down in your room watching film, breaking down receiver tendencies, quarterback tendencies, uh, opponents, you know, offensive coordinator tendencies, just looking back over the years, you know, what teams he played for, how they run their system and stuff. All that's going to translate to that, that Saturday game and – just watching film probably be the biggest part of getting your mental ready. And along with, you know, studying your playbook. Because if you know everybody's job, you know, if somebody's out of place, you can let them know. Recover. You just have to know your job. You got to know everybody else's job. So study your playbook and watch film be the two main factors. That's what's up. That's what's up. So what is it like playing at a high level? Oh, man, it's, it's amazing, man. It's a like rush. Said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you out there in front of 100,000 fans. And you can't get something like NFL talent every week. That's right. That's right. You know, you just – it's a blessing to be able to play a game you love at the highest level. And, you know, we're not, you know, college in the NFL, mm-hmm. but you play against NFL talent, so. Well, well, Co- Coach Harbaugh called it the Michigan – what do you call it? N- N- Michigan's NFL's 33rd team. <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely could. They t- yeah. it's talent everywhere up there. Yeah, man. so Michigan don't play, man. Yeah. With that being said – uh, why? Why did you choose Duke? Because you got you got the talent, you got the coach, you got the experience, you got the resume, and got the history. Yeah. So reason I chose Duke really, you know, Michigan. I was up there for a good three years. You know, mm-hmm. I played, and you know, I went on trips with them, and I got to build a lot of relationships up there in Michigan. That's right. After three years, I just felt like it was time for me to do something different. You know, just in my life period, not just football, okay. just in my life.